So with, I guess, starting out with Alfred uh, Kinsey, uh, his book, uh, Sexual Behavior in the Human Male and then Sexual Behavior in the Human Female, could you share a little bit about that with our listeners? Oh, sure. Well, 1948, just a few years after World War II, our guys are coming home. They fought and saved the world, including Europe, which seems to forget that very quickly, saved the world uh, from from tyranny, and, and they're traumatized, and they're trying to start their lives again and pick up where they left off. If they're, if they're physically okay, if they're emotionally okay, they've got a crack at it. They had no idea that they defeated the enemy abroad but couldn't defeat the enemy at home because they didn't know they were being sabotaged at home. So Kinsey arrives 1948. Um, our guys are unable to deal with the lies he's creating. What he said was, oh, he did this big investigation, and really the average guy is a sex offender, he said. You know, 95% of our men, he said, are committing sex offenses, that um, that 50% of our women are engaged in, in uh, 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 fornication, that 85% of our men are engaged. These are all, uh, that's illegal, by the way, in the United States at the time. Uh, he said that 25% of our wives are had, had abortions. Uh, he said that um, 100% of children from birth are sexual and that they can have uh, perfectly wonderful sex lives if they do so, you know, with, with older people when they're very young, that... Um, that uh, uh, 69% of our guys are, are using uh, prostitutes, all sorts of things. That, and, of course, the 10 to 37% of American males have engaged in homosexual activity. Now, these were all lies, flat-out lies, because 87% of his population was self-selected. They were prisoners. They were 1,400 sex offenders. They were all deviant, for the most part. Very few normal people would answer him, and certainly no normal women did, so that he redefined wives as any woman who lived more than a year with a man and uh, had a large uh, prostitution population of females that he used to redefine his wives. I mean, the guy was a psychopath and a sadomasochistic one, and children were tortured for his research. Uh, children as babies, as young as two months of age, were sexually tortured for his research. And um, his research becomes the foundation for everything that people have been taught since in the United States of America. It's a blitzkrieg across every newspaper, his pictures on every magazine. Again, you're funded by the Rockefeller Foundation. That means that nobody really much has the nerve to come against you in the academic world. They all need your grants and that sort of thing. So it, 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 he really was a mad scientist. He really did torture himself so badly um, his organs that he appears to have died from his abuse to his organs. Uh, orchitis was the disease that he had, which is a basically a venereal disease and also one that comes as a result of massive trauma. So this guy becomes the sex educator for the world. I mean, you know, we're going to have problems. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, I guess I, I really wanted to make sure I scooped out uh, some of this information around the pedophilia and mm -hmm. the research that went into 
uh, his work. Uh, could you share a little bit about that, please? Sure. He's called the father of the pedophile movement by NAMBLA, the North American Band Lo- Man Boy Love Association. They they have his picture on the website. I figure one of these days I'll pull it down because I keep talking about it. And they and there's a statement made by the head of NAMBLA saying that uh, boy love um, uh, gay gays and boy lovers. Uh, should hold Kinsey dear, his research dear, because uh, everything that he has done is the battle that we fight today. Uh, so, so Kinsey is the father of the pedophile movement. He's the father, obviously, of the, the sexual revolution. He is the father of the homosexual revolution. And within the pedophile world, uh, we're looking at least, at least, at minimum, and it's really so minimum, 317 infants and children, the youngest two months, as I said, uh, five months old, children being sexually molested around the clock by Kinsey's team and by Kinsey, apparently, hands-on, children who fainted, children who had convulsions, children who wept, cried, screamed, I'm quoting Kinsey, and, uh, and who struck what he called their partner, that is the adult male who's raping these children. And, um, and, you know, he said that the children enjoyed it. <laughs> now, I remember when I first read that in his book, I thought, this guy's got to be a sadomasochistic pedophile. And, indeed, that is precisely the profile that he has, he himself fits. And he surrounded himself with similar aberrant, dysfunctional, uh, criminal, uh, criminal uh, pedophilia associated and, and bestiality associated people. I mean, this was a really, really whacked out bunch. And from that, he gathered uh, some judges and some lawyers and um, others of like mind who then created what's called the American law, the um, ALI, American um, uh, um, Institute, um, well, the ALI. anyway, Model Penal Code, which came out of the American Bar Association, and that Model Penal Code gutted all of the laws that had been protecting women and children in the United States up to 1948 when he hit the scene. Are you wow. there? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and every attempt to investigate him has been thwarted. In 1954, there was a major congressional investigation of the philanthropies, and uh, they were supposed to investigate Kinsey's research. The congressman who headed the research project was threatened with having the project stop totaling his, his investigation killed if he dared to expose Kinsey's research. So he backed down. He didn't expose it. Uh, in 1995, we tried another investigation of the Kinsey research on children, again, on children. And all that was thwarted. We're, I'm, I'm working to try to get an investigation again. The American Legislative Exchange uh, Council, which is a group of, of conservative um, legislators nationwide, uh, have have produced a it's on my website ladies and gentlemen i mean the this part of it not everything you got to go to the book and read it because you have to know what it says but anyway so there's uh there's an attempt now to return to do an investigation if you know if the president apologized for for Tuskegee and if the president apologized for the LSD experiments on our on our soldiers we certainly should be getting an apology uh, for the sexual violence and, and sexual assault done to these children, infants and children, 
and we most certainly should be doing an investigation of this federally and state-funded group, the Kinsey Institute, which now is still in action at Indiana University in Bloomington. Context of white supremacy, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Thursday, November 25, 2021. So I have been told uh, the voice that you just heard that was Judith Reisman, white woman suspected racist she was a guest on the program way back in 2010 Uh, we discussed her research into sexual behavior started with that because last week in the book club reading Shauna Swan's countdown we got to chapter four title of chapter four is gender fluidity beyond male and female you all remember this from last week right So the first paragraph of the chapter starts as the renowned biologist and sex researcher Alfred C. Kinsey wrote in 1948, the living world is a continuum in each and every one of its aspects. The sooner we learn this concerning human sexual behavior, the sooner we shall reach a sound understanding of the realities of sex. End quote. She continues truer words were never written I'm just stopping right there now the more you know about Alfred Kinsey the different your perspective or opinion about wow why would Alfred Kinsey be included at the beginning of this chapter a chapter that by the way goes on to talk about oh yeah in the midst of all this sexual freedom and diversity and LGBTQ pride and rights uh, the thing that people do not talk about is are all of these poisons and toxins in the food water air is all of that impacting the sexual conduct reproductive development of people and she gives definitives with all the research saying hey absolutely uh, many of these chemicals poisons are in lab settings impacting the reproductive development sexual activity of other species of course it's having an impact on people as well and uh, something that is not talked about as much I thought that was so important and then again within all of that you start the chapter with a reference to Alfred Kinsey you heard Judith Reisman she said Alfred Kinsey is not a a renowned biologist Uh, he is a pedophile and a psychopath wisdom of psychopaths that's what she called him raping sexually abusing children in his research uh, conducting surveys on convicts and applying the results with prisoners to the population at large this is the person you want to start your book with almost the same way that many of us I think thought about wow she's referencing Woody Allen and his goofy movie everything you wanted to know about sex why is that almost a similar type of a feel like I said depends on how much you know about Alfred Kinsey we will go ahead and get started let me give the full title of the book again so this is Shauna Swan's PhD count down how our modern world 
is threatening sperm counts, altering male and female reproductive development, and imperiling the future of the human race. White genetic annihilation. Dr. Welsing would want us to read critically. Audio segment one. Six. Up close and personal. Lifestyle habits that can sabotage fertility. The challenge of measuring up. When a man visits a sperm bank to make a donation, certain lifestyle practices can quickly land him on the no-fly list. Use of illicit drugs is an obvious one. The same is true if the aspiring donor takes nearly any medication on a daily basis or has been exposed to or is infected with sexually transmitted diseases, STDs. Many sperm banks also ask about recent illnesses with fever because fever is associated with declines in sperm quality, but these are temporary influences rather than permanent deal-breakers. Certain lifestyle factors can also have such a negative effect on a man's sperm quality that he ends up not making the cut. These include exposure to certain occupational or environmental hazards, smoking, excessive alcohol use, nutrient deficiencies, overheating, and general couch potato habits. These issues don't even consider the basic requirements for eligibility, which vary slightly from one sperm bank to another. At the California Cryobank, for example, aspiring donors must be at least 5 feet 8 inches, between 19 and 38 years old, a college graduate or in college, in good health, legally allowed to work in the United States, and have sexual partners who are exclusively female. The Sperm Bank of California has similar criteria, but is slightly more flexible about height. Five feet seven inches is the minimum. The Northwest Cryobank in the Pacific Northwest has the additional requirement that applicants be within normal weight limits for their muscular build and height. Ultimately, a guy has a better chance of being admitted to Harvard, Princeton, or Yale than he does of being accepted as a donor at the country's leading sperm banks. Some have an acceptance rate as low as 1%. Aside from the aesthetic and educational requirements, which largely stem from client preferences, there are good reasons for many of these highly selective standards. These elements could affect a man's sperm quality and the health of a baby that's conceived. Most sperm banks, for example, won't accept donations from men over 40 because an older man is likely to have more DNA damage in his sperm than a man in his 20s or 30s. Certain lifestyle practices can also damage DNA in sperm, as well as compromise sperm concentrations, motility, and morphology. Yet most men are unaware of this. Fertility Foiling Lifestyle Factors the reality is, while we're all going about our daily business, men and women could unwittingly be harming their reproductive health and fertility, ignorant of this possibility until they have trouble conceiving. Aspects of the modern diet and lifestyle are bad for sperm, and women's reproductive function isn't immune to these influences. Some lifestyle practices, such as smoking and heavy alcohol use, won't come as surprises 
because they're known to be harmful to your heart, lungs, bones, and other areas. But your doctor may not have mentioned, and your mother didn't know, that what's bad for these organs and tissues can be bad for reproductive function too, kicking up the risks of problems with sperm quality in men, as well as with menstrual function, miscarriage, ovarian reserve, and other reproductive parameters in women. It is worth noting that body burdens are slightly different for men and women. Spoiler alert, a greater number of lifestyle factors can harm a man's sperm than a woman's eggs, and so is the time frame for these influences to potentially do their greatest damage. Women's reproductive lifespan lasts 25 to 35 years, whereas for men it can be much longer. The oldest reported father was 96. Because sperm are continuously produced during adulthood, men whose lifestyle habits have compromised their semen quality may be able to improve it by changing their behaviors. They get a do-over, a chance to hit the reset button. Women aren't always as lucky in this respect. It's true that if a woman has exercise-induced amenorrhea, the absence of menstruation, or is underweight because she's not eating enough, exercising less and eating more may restore her estrogen levels to the normal range and her periods back to a more regular cycle, including more consistent ovulation. But with that exception, she has fewer opportunities to potentially reverse the misfortune of reproductive problems that have befallen her. Here's a closer look at how specific lifestyle-related factors can harm reproductive health. Body weight One factor that has an equal opportunity influence on reproductive function in men and women is body weight. Of course, weight isn't a lifestyle factor, but diet and exercise patterns are, and they can have substantial effects on how much someone weighs. This has little to do with the plastics and chemicals in our midst, although EDCs, some of which have been called obesogens, can influence how much weight we gain. It has a lot to do with the quality of our food choices and our levels of physical activity. There is no denying that it's highly challenging to manage your weight in the modern world. Given that high-calorie, processed, and super-processed foods are within reach nearly everywhere you go. And it's easy to get through a day with little movement now that we're living in the age of automated everything. These realities may be taking a toll on human reproductive function as well as body weight. Being substantially overweight or underweight has a negative effect on sperm quality, and obesity, a body mass index, or BMI, of 30 or higher, is especially detrimental because it's associated with lower sperm count, concentration, and volume, decreased sperm motility, and a higher incidence of abnormally shaped sperm. For women, there's also a U-shaped curve when it comes to the link between body weight and miscarriage. Women with a BMI of 30 or higher, or a BMI less than 18.5, have an increased risk of miscarriage. Similarly, if a woman's weight is too high or too low, it can affect her chances of getting pregnant because she may not be ovulating regularly or may not have the proper amounts of estrogen and progesterone to support a healthy pregnancy. This is another example of the Goldilocks principle. Men and women alike have a sweet spot, or a just-right zone, in the words of Goldilocks, 
for body weight as far as optimal reproductive function and fertility go. Considering these associations, it may not be a coincidence that the decline in sperm counts, the uptick in fertility problems, and the rise in obesity rates in Western countries have occurred in tandem. From 1999 to 2016 alone, the obesity rate among adults in the United States increased by 30%, with nearly 40% of adults tipping their scales into the obese category in 2016. Smoke gets into your private parts. As you've heard countless times, including just a few pages ago, smoking is among the most harmful health habits on the planet. It's also among the most damaging influences on men's reproductive function. Cigarette smoking is associated with reduced sperm count and motility and an increase in defects in shape, with more dramatic detrimental effects in moderate to heavy smokers than in lighter smokers. But any amount of smoking, even exposure to secondhand smoke, is harmful to sperm. Research in mice found that those subjected to environmental cigarette smoke had sperm with missing tails. This makes it difficult, if not impossible, for the little swimmers to reach the egg. In humans, the chemicals in cigarettes have been found to cause damage to the DNA in sperm, reduce testosterone levels, and impair the sperm's ability to fertilize an egg. BTW, smoking also increases the risk of erectile dysfunction. For women, too, smoking is the most injurious lifestyle factor when it comes to reproductive health. The chemicals in cigarettes, nicotine, cyanide, and carbon monoxide, are toxic to a woman's eggs and speed up the rate at which they die off. Infertility rates are significantly higher among women who smoke, and the risk rises with the number of cigarettes a woman smokes. Smoking also increases a woman's risk of having a tubal or ectopic pregnancy or miscarriage, and the amount of time it takes the woman to get pregnant, whether she's trying to conceive the old-fashioned way or through IVF. Moreover, because smoking damages the genetic material in eggs and sperm, women who smoke are more likely to have a chromosomally abnormal fetus, such as one with Down syndrome. Exposure to secondhand smoke is also harmful for women's reproductive function. Research has found that women who are exposed to secondhand smoke often take longer to get pregnant. In addition, women who had never smoked but had the highest exposure to secondhand smoke, whether it was at home as a child or as an adult or at work, had significantly higher risks of having a miscarriage, stillbirth, or ectopic pregnancy. That same group also has an increased chance of going through natural menopause before age 50. And there's no question that passive smoking, a.k.a. exposure to secondhand smoke, is nearly as damaging to a developing fetus's health as if the mother actually smoked. While rates of cigarette smoking among adult men and women in the United States have declined by more than 50% since 1964, Nearly 38 million of them, 14 out of every 100, still light up daily or frequently. Worldwide, rates of cigarette smoking are considerably higher. Nearly 20% of the world's population smoked in 2014. Smoking rates are slightly lower among women, 
12% than among men, 16%, in the United States. But worldwide, men smoke nearly five times more than women, with the highest rates for men found in Western Pacific countries. Marijuana is the most widely used recreational drug in the United States, and its use continues to grow, especially as more states legalize it. Many younger people, in particular, currently believe that it's safer to smoke weed than nicotine, but it may be a mistake to think that marijuana is less toxic to sperm. There hasn't been much research on this issue, but it's starting to trickle in. A 2015 study from Denmark found that regularly smoking marijuana more than once a week was associated with a 29% lower sperm count. Even worse, men ages 18 to 28 who used marijuana more than once a week, as well as other recreational drugs, reduced their total sperm count by 55%. Among men undergoing fertility evaluation as a precursor to assisted reproduction, those who used large quantities of marijuana were four times more likely to have poor swimmers, and moderate users were nearly three and a half times more likely to have abnormally shaped sperm. Women aren't impervious to such harmful reproductive effects. A 2019 study found that women who smoked marijuana when they underwent infertility treatment with ART had more than double the miscarriage rate of those who didn't. There's also preliminary evidence that using e-cigarettes, or vaping, may damage sperm. Some animal studies suggest that even cannabidiol, CBD, the second most prevalent active ingredient in marijuana, could damage sperm development and reduce the ability of sperm to fertilize an egg, although not much research has been done on this substance. This isn't that surprising, since CBD products have only recently become super trendy. The use of e-cigarettes has also become popular, especially among young adults, with 28% of high school students in the United States fessing up to using these tobacco products regularly, according to a 2019 survey of more than 10,000 high school students. How these new trends will affect the fertility of this generation of young adults remains to be determined. Stay tuned. A Toast to Good Semen While any amount of smoking is bad news for sperm, semen is more forgiving when it comes to alcohol. Like body weight, this is another variable with a sweet spot. Moderate alcohol intake, defined as four to seven units per week, for the record, one glass of wine and one bottle of beer each constitute one unit, is associated with higher semen volume and total sperm count. But high intakes, more than 25 units per week, are hazardous to sperm and other aspects of semen quality. Chronic or excessive alcohol intake may reduce testosterone production, which could compromise sperm production and other aspects of semen quality. And though it's not a consistent effect, some scientific as well as anecdotal evidence links heavy alcohol consumption with a greater risk for erectile dysfunction. Guys often refer to this effect as whiskey dick, which Men's Health magazine calls the greatest curse known to mankind. The same guidelines for alcohol apply to women. Stick with moderation. 
Low to moderate alcohol consumption, one drink per day, before pregnancy, does not affect a woman's risk of having a miscarriage or stillbirth. By contrast, binge drinking, for women tossing down four or more drinks on one occasion, is known to be harmful to the heart, mind, and other parts of the body. Research suggests that frequent binge drinking in women can have an adverse effect on ovarian reserve, given that it's associated with lower levels of anti-malarian hormone, which is produced by the ovaries, 26% lower, according to one study. This is particularly worrisome since the rate of high-risk drinking among women in the United States has been on the upswing, increasing by 58% from 2001 to 2013. It goes without saying, of course, that drinking during pregnancy is a major no-no. Foods for infertility. A man's eating habits can affect his fertility for better or worse, too. Some of the most compelling findings about the influence of diet and nutrition on semen quality come from the Rochester Young Men's Study, RYMS, which I've been leading since 2007, and the analyses are ongoing. For RYMS, we recruited male college students who were enrolled at the University of Rochester in New York between 2009 and 2010 and had each man provide a semen sample and complete detailed questionnaires about his own food intake and his mother's eating habits while she was pregnant with him. RYMS was part of a multi-center international study that aimed to evaluate the effects of environmental contaminants on semen quality, and the findings were nothing short of illuminating. On the negative side of the ledger, a high intake of full-fat dairy foods, especially cheese, was found to be associated with greater abnormalities in sperm quality. These unfortunate effects might be due to the large amounts of estrogens in dairy products or to the presence of environmental contaminants such as pesticides and chlorinated pollutants in these products. Many people don't realize that hormones, including estrogen, progesterone, and testosterone, are given to beef cattle and sheep 60 to 90 days before slaughter to promote their growth, and residues of these hormones persist in the meat. One of our studies found that when pregnant women ate seven or more beef-containing meals per week, their sons had reduced sperm counts. Meat processing, such as salting, curing, fermentation, and smoking, is also of concern. Men who eat a lot of processed meats, think hot dogs, bacon, sausage, salami, and bologna, tend to have a lower sperm count and a lower percentage of normally shaped sperm. In addition, the curing of meats produces chemicals, including nitrates and nitrites, that can cause cancer and also damage DNA, including DNA in sperm. Healthy young men who are lean but drink more sugar-sweetened beverages, such as sodas, sports drinks, and sweetened iced teas, have reduced sperm motility compared to men who rarely consume these drinks. That these effects were confined to lean men rather than overweight or obese men suggests that they may be due to the promotion of insulin resistance and oxidative stress, which are known to negatively influence sperm motility. Long before a woman is eating for two, her diet may affect her reproductive health and functionality. 
For a woman's fertility, a high intake of meat and trans fats is among the biggest dietary demons. On the positive side, an adequate intake of folic acid is not only important during pregnancy, since it can prevent neural tube defects such as spina bifida in the baby, but a higher intake before conception may also increase a woman's chances of becoming pregnant and decrease her risk of miscarriage. Women who can't imagine giving up their morning cup of java can rest assured. This habit isn't damaging to female fertility, ovarian function, or other aspects of reproductive health. But moderation is the watchword here because there are hazards associated with overdoing it. For one thing, consuming too much caffeine during pregnancy can be problematic. A couple of cups of coffee per day aren't, but downing four or more servings per day is associated with a 20% increased risk of miscarriage and giving birth to smaller-than-expected babies. Couch Potato Habits Spending long hours binge-watching favorite TV shows may be a feel-good way to unwind, but it won't do a man's semen any favors. In a study involving 1,210 healthy young Danish men, researchers found that long periods of television watching were associated with dramatically lower sperm counts and decreased testosterone levels. The sperm concentrations of men who watched TV more than five hours per day were 30% lower than those of men who didn't tune into the tube at all, but a decline was seen for any amount of TV watching. These effects may be due in part to the increase in the scrotum's temperature that comes from sitting still. Increased scrotal temperature temporarily reduces sperm production. Interestingly, the same effects were not found for men who worked long hours at a time sitting at a computer, so the full story is still a bit of a mystery. Another move-it-or-lose-it effect Among adults in the United States, physical activity trends have been heading along a healthy trajectory, with a 24% increase from 2008 to 2017 in the number of adults meeting the guidelines for minimum aerobic exercise, 150 minutes of moderate intensity, or 75 minutes of vigorous intensity exercise per week. Those are certainly steps in the right direction, pun intended, but there's still plenty of room for improvement because 46% of adults are not getting the recommended dose of movement. Regular physical activity is beneficial for reproductive function, as well as cardiovascular and brain health. An exception to this move-it-to-boost-it dynamic? Bicycling. Men who reported cycling for 90 minutes or more per week had 34% lower sperm concentrations than those who didn't ride bicycles at all. Another study examined the influence of cycling on sperm qualities and found that long-distance competitive cyclists had less than half as many normally shaped sperm as their less active peers did. One theory here is that a hot and bothered scrotum can cause deleterious effects on sperm production, while another suggests that compression from the seat against a man's private parts can affect blood flow to the testicles. Among the biggest potential lifestyle-related threats to a woman's reproductive health is the triple whammy of eating too little, exercising too much, and having menstrual irregularities. This is a big deal for several reasons. Chief among them, 
If a woman doesn't have periods, meaning she has amenorrhea, or has highly irregular menstrual cycles, the level of estrogen in her body may be lowered significantly. Naturally, this is a problem if she wants to have a healthy pregnancy. But the low estrogen also causes her to lose bone density and strength, which can put her at risk for stress fractures and osteoporosis. The combination of disordered eating, including full-blown eating disorders, subclinical ones, and excessive exercise, menstrual dysfunction, and low bone density can lead to what's called the female athlete triad. While any physically active woman can develop one or more parts of the triad at any age, those at greatest risk include women who participate in physical activities that place a premium on appearance or that prize endurance. In the aesthetic category are cheerleading, dance, figure skating, and gymnastics. In the latter are sports such as distance running or rowing. Even without the other elements of the triad, extreme exercise, as in exercising to the point of exhaustion, on a daily basis more than doubles a woman's risk of having ovulatory dysfunction and infertility. This is at least partly because excessive amounts of exercise can lower hormone levels and cause a woman not to ovulate or to ovulate irregularly. By contrast, moderate exercise, defined as physical activity that's performed at a moderate intensity for less than an hour per day, is associated with a reduced risk of infertility. In other words, moderate exercise is a healthy source of physical stress, whereas excessive exercise tips the balance into overload territory. During graduate school, Susanna took her occasional jogs to the next level, cranking up their frequency, pace, and distance. She had lost 15 pounds the previous summer and was deluged with compliments about her newly slender 5-foot-9-inch figure. Because she was worried about gaining back the weight despite running 25 to 35 miles per week, she began skipping meals or eating very lightly and sometimes even purged or doubled up on her runs after eating too much. The result? Susanna lost seven more pounds and her period. I was secretly thrilled to not have the hassle of my period, but after five months, it came back with a vengeance, every two to three weeks, and that was a nightmare, she recalls. That's when Susanna saw her doctor, who diagnosed her with an exercise-induced hormone disorder and warned that she was putting herself at risk for bone loss and a stress fracture. The doctor didn't mention fertility problems as a possible consequence, but Susanna later found out they could have resulted. The doctor advised Susanna to either cut back on running and gain some weight, or to take oral contraceptives to regulate her menstrual cycle. By then, she was addicted to running, so she chose the latter option, until she discovered that the pill gave her headaches and extreme breast tenderness. It was a tough trade-off because I loved being thinner, but I couldn't stand the way the hormones made me feel she recalls. So she stopped taking the oral contraceptives and began limiting her running to four times per week and eating regular meals again. Within three months, she'd gained eight pounds and her periods resumed a regular pattern. Stress and Fertility it may be anxiety-provoking to recognize the extent to which lifestyle factors can affect sperm production and fertility, 
but we haven't even gotten to the issue of stress. Besides affecting a man's state of mind, the unavoidable stresses and strains of modern life can take a toll on his sperm production. This is especially true if his personal stress meter registers overload, which can happen quite easily these days. In a study of 1,215 Danish men, researchers found that those who reported the highest stress levels on a psychosocial questionnaire had 38% lower sperm concentrations than men who reported intermediate stress levels. Some of my own research has found that men who've experienced two or more recent stressful life events, such as the death or serious illness of a close relative, divorce or serious relationship problems, moving, or a job change, were more likely to have below normal sperm concentration, motility, and morphology. And medium and high levels of work stress have been associated with sperm DNA damage. One way or another, experiencing excessive psychological stress can essentially put an out-of-order sign on the sperm production machinery, not to mention a man's sex drive. The complicated issue of stress is even worse for women, who are nearly twice as likely to suffer from severe stress as men are. Among other health effects, stress can send a woman's libido packing, just as it can for a man. Another rising hazard in the contemporary world that can affect people's reproductive potential. And some research has found that women with high levels of perceived stress are more likely to have irregular or painful periods and more premenstrual symptoms, which can kill the mood. All that said, the relationship between stress and fertility isn't quite so simple. For decades, the connection has been hotly debated, and the jury is still out on this. The reason? Women who are undergoing fertility treatments, including IVF, report high levels of stress, but it's not clear whether stress itself can cause or contribute to infertility. It's a chicken-and-egg kind of mystery. Meanwhile, some compelling evidence links high levels of psychological stress to an increased risk of miscarriage, particularly recurrent miscarriage, although this association isn't clear-cut either. In fact, when researchers from the Naval Health Research Center in San Diego examined whether the military experiences of U.S. servicewomen who were deployed in Iraq and Afghanistan increased their chances of having a miscarriage or impaired fertility upon their return, they found that military deployment, an intensely stressful experience if ever there was one, didn't increase the risk for miscarriage or fertility problems. This is encouraging news for civilian women who are stressed out and want to get pregnant. Sex, Drugs, and Reproductive Function A number of medications, too, can KO reproductive function, particularly hormonal agents and antineoplastic agents, which are used to treat cancer. Others can as well. What isn't widely known about the U.S. opioid epidemic is that these powerful pain-relieving drugs can increase DNA damage in sperm, and with high doses of opioids, testosterone levels drop significantly. Farther down the pain medication potency scale, Tylenol, the generic name is acetaminophen, it's known in Europe as paracetamol, 
has been shown to cause sperm abnormalities, including DNA fragmentation, and to increase the time it takes to achieve a pregnancy. Moreover, taking high doses of Tylenol can alter the shape of sperm in ways that can compromise their fertilizing capabilities. Some male athletes use anabolic androgenic steroids, which are synthetic or man-made variations of testosterone, to improve their performance and or increase their muscle mass and strength. Besides having serious and potentially irreversible adverse effects on various organs and body systems, including the reproductive system, these steroids can throw hormone levels significantly out of whack. If they're overused, these steroids can lead to structural and functional changes in sperm, a reduction in the volume of the testicles, enlarged breasts, and subfertility in men. Testosterone supplementation is the gold standard for treating patients with male hypogonadism, a condition in which the testicles don't produce enough testosterone. While testosterone replacement therapy helps restore muscle strength, prevent bone loss, and increase energy and sex drive in men with hypogonadism, it often impairs sperm production and can even completely eliminate it in some men. Given the increasing incidence of hypogonadism and the rise in older men who want to have children but don't have enough testosterone to do the job, 39% of men ages 45 and older have hypogonadism, according to one U.S. study. Healthcare providers are increasingly encountering men with testicular failure who want to restore their fertility. That's not a simple proposition. At every age, women are twice as likely to take antidepressants as men, and the use of these medications increased 64% from 1999 to 2014 for both genders. And are you detecting a pattern? The use of SSRIs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, which are prescribed primarily for depression or anxiety, reduces sperm concentration and motility and increases the percentage of abnormal sperm. For women trying to conceive, some evidence suggests that taking antidepressants may reduce the probability of success in a given menstrual cycle by 25%. What's more, concern is mounting about drug-induced amenorrhea. Menstrual irregularities that are brought on by the use of antidepressants, as well as antipsychotic and anti-seizure drugs. These effects are complex but worth mentioning, given that the use of antidepressants alone has skyrocketed in the United States. They are undeniably a potent factor that could affect the reproductive health and functionality of millions of women of childbearing age. Undoing the Damage the good news is that many of the detrimental effects that I've been telling you about are reversible. After giving up cigarettes, heavy drinking, bicycling, or SSRIs, a man's sperm integrity may improve considerably. Case in point, a few years ago, a 20-something man who was a regular sperm donor at the Fairfax Cryobank in Philadelphia was put on a break after he experienced a drop in his sperm count and motility and an increase in round cells in his semen sample. As the staff talked to him about these changes, the donor mentioned that he had moved in with a woman who was a smoker, started a new job that was stressful, and was eating a lot of fast food and junk food. 
The staff made recommendations for improving his diet, getting more sleep, managing stress better, and minimizing his exposure to cigarette smoke, and sent him on his way. Three months later, he returned and his sperm quality had rebounded to where it was before. As you've seen, assuming they have healthy sperm to begin with, men are in the enviable position of having the chance to reestablish a clean slate, given that sperm are continually being produced in a process that takes 60 to 70 days. So if men improve their lifestyle habits, they can reset their sperm production. A woman's eggs don't have the opportunity to regenerate the way sperm do. Instead, once they're fried, that's it. They're cooked, and the damage is irreversible. All of this is to say, the highly hectic, pressure-packed lives many people lead appear to be taking a toll on their sex drives and fertility. It's hard to determine whether the declines stem primarily from altered hormone levels, increased stress levels, poor lifestyle choices, or other factors. But one way or another, it's clear that modern life is having a chilling effect on people's reproductive health and well-being. 7. Silent Ubiquitous Threats The Dangers of Plastics and Modern Chemicals The Promise of Plastics Remember the cocktail party scene in The Graduate, in which Benjamin Braddock, the recent college grad played by Dustin Hoffman, is making the rounds and chatting with guests? At one point, Mr. McGuire, a friend of Ben's parents, takes him aside and says he has one word for him. Plastics. There's a great future in plastics. After World War II, Chemical companies launched campaigns suggesting that plastics could be molded to meet myriad needs and provide greater convenience in modern life. Before long, plastics, and the chemicals they contain, became ubiquitous in water bottles and food packaging, in cars, computers, and other electronic devices, and in other everyday products. In particular, Chemicals in plastic include phthalates, which make plastics soft and flexible, bisphenol A, BPA, which makes products hard, and polyvinyl chloride, PVC, which is versatile and can be used in a range of products, including children's toys, building materials, and food packaging. The combination of scant regulation and high consumer demand led to the era of better living through chemistry. Plastic remains everywhere in our world, and we're starting to pay a price for its ubiquity. The same is true of pesticides, flame retardants, and other chemicals in widespread use. This despite the fact that Rachel Carson's groundbreaking 1962 book, Silent Spring, drew global attention to a mounting concern among scientists and activists that synthetic chemicals were having negative effects on wildlife and the environment, and posing health risks to humans. Since then, things have only gotten worse. One problem is the almost complete lack of regulation of these chemicals. Unlike drugs, which must have a proven record of safety and efficacy before they're allowed to come to market, chemicals are largely presumed innocent from the start. They're considered safe until proven otherwise. 
This means manufacturers can use these chemicals in a wide array of consumer products with little oversight or restriction. It's a bit like the Wild West, lawless and untamed. Even decades after the 1976 Toxic Substances Control Act was enacted, few of the approximately 85,000 chemicals that have been produced for use in commercial products, many of which have been identified as potential threats to human health, have even been tested, let alone banned or regulated. In the rare instances when chemicals are tested, the studies that are conducted don't usually protect human health because the protocols don't address the effects of dosing nuances, high versus low, for example. Or they don't consider the potentially cumulative or interactive effects these substances can have when they're mixed inside the human body. The point is, myriad chemicals that are used to manufacture a vast array of consumer products are largely unregulated which means they continue to be on the market and we continue to buy them and bring them into our homes where they get into our bodies. Once they're on the market, these chemicals can enter our bodies in numerous ways, in the contaminated foods and beverages we ingest, in microscopic airborne particles we inhale, and in the products we absorb through our skin. The Chemical Class Name Game to understand how harmful chemicals linger in the environment, it helps to distinguish between persistent and non-persistent chemicals. Legacy chemicals stick around and can cause problems long after they're released into our bodies and the environment. These include persistent organic pollutants, POPs, such as dioxin, a byproduct of industrial processes, dichlorodiphenyl trichloroethane, DDT, a pesticide, and polychlorinated biphenyls, PCBs, industrial compounds. The adage that nothing lasts forever isn't true of these chemicals, which were designed precisely to last. They remain in the environment and our bodies for years. The trouble is, these forever chemicals have the potential to do endless harm once they get into the bodies of humans and other species. Because they are not water-soluble, they don't degrade, and they are stored in body fat and other tissues. The Stockholm Convention on Persistent Organic Pollutants, a global legally binding agreement adopted in 2004, outlaws the production, use, and release of all persistent organic pollutants. It listed 12 of the most toxic substances, aldrin, endrin, dieldrin, furan, hexachlorobenzene, PCBs, chlordane, DDT, dioxins, heptachlor, myrex, and toxaphene as priorities for elimination. Despite the adoption of this international agreement, many countries, including the United States, have not ratified it, so use of some of these toxic chemicals continues. As a result of current and past use, these POPs continue to be found in our air, soil, water, and food, and in our bodies, as well as in the bodies of other species. Once they enter the human body, from the foods we eat, the air we breathe, and the water we drink, these chemicals are stored in fat tissue, where they can accumulate and remain for years. DDT, for example, has a half-life in humans of up to 15 years, 
If you think that means it is gone after 15 years, nope. That's how long it takes for its concentration to fall to half of its original value. By contrast, non-persistent chemicals such as BPA, phenols, and phthalates are water-soluble, which means they essentially wash out of our bodies and the environment, and they do not accumulate in the body's fat. These short-lived chemicals have half-lives of 4 to 24 hours. Even so, levels of human exposure to many non-persistent chemicals, such as phthalates and phenols, tend to be fairly stable because of our continual use of products that contain them. Chemicals are so pervasive in our modern world that it's impossible to avoid them entirely. We're exposed to these chemicals on a daily basis, often without realizing it. Many of these chemicals, particularly phthalates and flame retardants, are even present in household dust, small particles of which can be inhaled, ingested, or absorbed through the skin. Even if you lived in a hygienic bubble, there's a good chance that some of the materials used to make it would contain plasticizers, adhesives, or other chemical components that could have endocrine-disrupting effects. Not every human being is equally affected, however. As Nora McKendrick, Ph.D., an associate professor of sociology at Rutgers University, writes in Better Safe Than Sorry, while all bodies contain synthetic chemicals, body burdens differ in crucial ways that reflect the social and political organization of risk, gender, and social inequalities. For example, while men and women are both exposed to these chemicals daily, most cosmetics, hair products, creams, lotions, etc., are primarily marketed to women and these substances contain a cocktail of heavy metals and endocrine-disrupting chemicals. But for most other chemicals, including testosterone-lowering phthalates, men have a greater overall exposure. Children are at risk, too, even before their first day of life. Babies are now entering the world already contaminated with chemicals because of the substances they absorb in the womb. And once the infants emerge, they consume many forever chemicals that are stored in the fat in their mother's breast milk. The longer the mom breastfeeds, the more she unloads, particularly for her firstborn child. In the 2010 Swedish documentary Submission, a Swedish actress who is pregnant has her blood tested for EDCs and is horrified by the results. An older woman chimes in, I instantly thought of my sons and how long I nursed them. This is a particularly painful realization for women who believe that they're boosting their baby's immune function and brain development by breastfeeding. Breastfeeding. Talked about that so many times on the program. Context of white supremacy. That is our first audio segment. Uh, we will pick up. Uh, so it's the subsection for chapter seven reeking hormonal havoc that's what we'll resume uh the number seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound Press star six one if you would like to participate. 
the email until justice at gmail dot com. Let's see. One of our investors uh, wrote in. Greetings, Gus. Uh, chapter six, where we started today. Number one, a 2015 study in Denmark regular smoking of marijuana more than once per week was associated with a 29% lower sperm count. All this promotion of the health benefits of medical cannabis use is interesting given this information and how this is one ooh wee I would love to know what Dr. Welsing would say about that. Grandcester number two <clears throat> antidepressant use of these medications increased 64% between 1999 through 2014 for both genders this is an out, uh, astounding excuse me this is an astounding statistic I wonder if it applies to non-white victims given the abuses in the field of mental health care is this partly due to the promotion and profit motive by pharmaceutical companies I am certain I would say with the antidepressants um, my general suspicion is that it might be more white people who are getting access I think number one uh, non-white people often don't have the same types of benefits and access to health care and physicians that will easily write a black person a prescription for an antidepressant uh, and I think too a lot of times white people especially if they're addicted or if they want to sell these medications on the white market we'll say or whatever else uh, it's easier for them to go in and you know say whatever and oh sure I'll write your prescription blah 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 no questions asked where I think non-white people would have a lot more scrutiny about their request for these medications so that would just be a general suspicion but I, I could be totally wrong let's see uh, this is going to chapter 7 number 1 unlike drugs which must have a proven record of safety and efficacy before they are allowed to come to market chemicals are presumed innocent from the start US pharmaceutical drugs are regulated by the FDA Federal Drug Administration both the FDA and US pharmaceutical industry have both been embroiled in countless controversies ethics violations and accusations of fraud and corruption that would be true uh, and I always thought that that was because I we talked about this before at least I've seen that before I think Harriet A. Washington may have brought that up in medical apartheid but the presumption that these chemicals are safe until proven otherwise um, and just she said Wild West but that can allow for a lot of dangerous behavior uh, let's see okay we didn't get to the rest of it we'll get to the rest of it later uh, so the number again 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate perhaps you can unhand that turkey leg for a moment see if uh, folks have any thoughts on the first chunk of our reading let's see uh -uh. 
folks are spectating for the moment I will sift through my notes and then circle back uh, again unhand that turkey napkin up and uh, see if you have a few notes uh, alright have to go back chapter 6 okay that's what we started at this week um, I guess I say even before I get to my first uh, note per se I did not Hmm. I hadn't read this book, right? So I didn't uh, have a grasp of how much information uh, she would give on things that males uh, are doing to reduce the quality uh, of their sperm, overall health even. Uh, I think that's really important. Uh, I don't I just don't think that as much of this information is widely available. Uh, I certainly don't think it's taught like in school. At least I don't remember that. Maybe things have changed. Hopefully they have improved. But I don't remember this sort of information being included in like school biology or health or, you know, any other science related uh, classes. But uh, that has been a pleasant surprise. Uh, let's see with notes. Um, she says or in the beginning of the chapter six where she talks about lifestyle factors. Every time I hear that, like lifestyle cancer and lifestyle decisions, I think Chadwick Boseman, when they talked about uh, colon cancer, him passing away at the age of 44 from colon cancer, uh, lifestyle cancer. <sighs> the lifestyle or our lives are styled by white supremacy racism, but she was including different lifestyle hazards uh environmental poisons pollution smoking excessive alcohol use nutrient deficiencies wow pretty much all of that or all of those conditions are major components of white supremacy racism they dump uh, poisons on black people all the time they promote cigarette smoking in areas where black people specifically live they promote al excessive alcohol use in areas where black people live and they warehouse black people in areas where they will be nutrient deficient uh, and even the overheating they put you someplace where there's no trees lots of asphalt concrete so it'll be even warmer we had a whole program on that so I mean I don't even know what that is like quadruple whammy uh, let's see she talked uh, aspects of the modern diet and lifestyle are bad for sperm and women's reproductive function isn't immune to these influences and what do we get again lifestyle practices such as smoking and heavy alcohol use uh, and then she says uh, this won't come as a surprise because they're known to be harmful to your heart lungs bones and other areas uh, again that moron is known for saying sobriety would be best and because it's so heavily uh, encouraged and promoted uh, within the system of white supremacy worldwide uh, let's see and even you can put this since we're reading this book right now in the middle of, of the pandemic for about two years we have been deluged with reports about increase in drinking in uh, North Carolina where Scotty Reed is 
uh, they had a, a bottleneck, pun intended, where they had difficulty meeting the increased liquor demand. They couldn't even get some of the, the spirits on the shelves. I think they were saying like it was a 30% or even more than that increase over drinking from 2019. Now think about that in context, stress, increased alcohol consumption. Let's see. Next, uh, when they talking about body weight, lifestyle factors, I just the metaphor, since we were reading, they said that, uh, when talking about weight, that there is an ideal weight that you should be at in terms of not weighing too much, not weighing too little. Uh, and she even has a footnote here in saying that uh, weighing too much is way more of a health concern than being underweight. Anyway, um, she says that this is another example of the Goldilocks principle. Men and women alike have a sweet spot or a just right zone in the words of Goldilocks for the body weight as a as far as optimal reproductive function and fertility go uh, again uh, a blonde white woman the metaphor uh, use uh, I guess the what is that a so-called fairy tale uh, that we should all be able to relate to and think yes Goldilocks had a right spot uh, a sweet spot that she wanted for the porridge and everything else so we can apply that metaphor for weight uh, again white people being the stand and I in a albine or melanin deficient blonde white woman as the standard that we should all know metaphors I say that all the time uh, let's see she talks so much about smoking and alcohol and even uh, talking about smoking when you don't smoke just being in an environment where people are smoking and can impact you, your sperm, uh, certainly the child if they're in utero. Uh, let's see. And again, that's one that I don't think they share in like school. Like if I don't have offspring, so, you know, if somebody if you have children, they are 14, 15, they are taking biology or have recently taken like a standard high school biology class or even an advanced AP, whatever, um, or they have, have had health or whatever that is these days. And it's, you know, Hey, Gusty, shut up. We, we learned all about that. They told us that smoking cigarettes can really mess up your sperm quality. And if you want to have healthy children at some point and continue your, your lineage, don't use cigarettes and get away from the alcohol. Don't be tubby. Don't be a couch potato. Like, I just don't remember that. Now, if that is being taught, then bravo. But deficiencies abound. Uh, let's see. Uh, 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 uh. Yeah, cigarette smoking with reduced sperm count and motility. Um, let's see. Oh, now then we get to the cannabis. Now that's one that I definitely have not heard that I flashed back with Dr. Welsing, who is a medical doctor, third generation physician, when she said, hey, I do not support all this. Let's legalize cannabis. And it's got all these supposed health benefits. And she said repeatedly, like, who has a lab? What black person do you know has a lab? And some sort of lab coat doesn't have to be a white one, but a lab coat where they have done studies on cannabis use. I remember I even asked my uh, prenatal yoga instructor 
do you have any information? Do you know of studies on the impact of cannabis consumption for pregnant women? And she said, no, she didn't, you know, know of any details on that or what have you. She said she'd, you know, take a look. But yeah, who studied all of that to say whether that's a good thing, a bad thing, like lots to consider. And for, yeah, for her to stay here, uh, this 2015 study from Denmark found that regularly smoking marijuana more than once a week was associated with a 29% lower sperm count. Even worse, men ages 18 to 28 who use marijuana more than once a week, as well as other recreational drugs, reduced their total sperm count by 55%. That is staggering. I mean, wow. That is something to consider. Now, I can hear that she said smoking. I can hear some people saying, well, what about if you vape or have edibles? They have so many things, you know, tinctures. You can get oils and apply it on your skin and all kinds of things. So, I mean, it would be lots to study. This is just one study from Denmark. You generally want to replicate and all that, but it would be lots to consider. Uh, and then she goes on to talk about uh, CBD products, which are big explode. Like I'm in Washington state where all this stuff is legal. They have CBD products everywhere. Uh, the grocery store. I mean, they're just everywhere. It's been stunning. Um, and she says uh, CBD and the e-cigarettes, uh, e which are not the same thing. Uh, and especially how young people are using these uh, products. And I know Dr. Welsing was concerned about that as well, getting so many young people, having them normalize the use of uh, drugs uh, and just saying that she didn't think that would be constructive either for many reasons, um, not to mention uh, impacting your sperm quality at such a young age when your reproductive organs are still developing. Uh, let's see. Oh my gosh, look at this here. I don't read men's health. Maybe I should. Chronic or excessive alcohol intake may reduce testosterone production, which could compromise sperm production and other aspects of semen quality. And though it's not a consistent effect, some scientific as well as anecdotal evidence links heavy alcohol consumption with a greater risk for erectile dysfunction. Guys often refer to this effect as whiskey dick which men's health I can't I, I, let me get it together which men's health magazine calls the greatest curse known to mankind that is what I found most staggering in that whole portion of what I just read I'd never heard of the term whiskey dick before I'm not a drinker so you know maybe and I don't hang out at bars so maybe if I did and I don't read men's health magazine so maybe that's why I missed it However, are you see whiskey dick is the greatest curse known to mankind? My jaw is on the ground. <laughs> you could fit the whole turkey in my mouth right now. Like, are you flipping serious? Not the Rona. This book was published, I believe, earlier this year in the middle of the Rona pandemic. So not the Rona, not white supremacy, racism. Not male pattern baldness. Whiskey dick. Uh, just say no. I thought that was what Nancy, uh, Nancy Reagan said. Just say no, right? Stay out of the bar. Stay out of the liquor store. How about that? 
personal responsibility. Isn't that what they tell us? Let's see. Uh, incidentally, that might help because I don't remember anybody saying anything about whiskey dick in school either. Like if they had said, hey, drinking alcohol might really mess up your uh, Johnson, as they say, and you being able to have fun with a female. Like what? <sighs> I would have thought about that every time someone offered a sip of spirit wouldn't have a problem with alcohol consumption uh, being 30% up in North Carolina let's see oh my goodness plant based diet she has a whole subsection on food and infertility she says one of our studies found that when pregnant women ate seven or more beef containing meals per week their sons had reduced sperm counts Meat processing, such as salting, curing, fermentation, and smoking is also of concern. Men who eat a lot of processed meats, think hot dogs, used to be every day for Gusty, bacon, sausage, salami, bologna, tend to have a lower sperm count and a lower percentage of normally shaped sperm. In addition, the curing of meats produces chemicals including nitrates and nitrites that can cause cancer and also damage DNA, including DNA in sperm. That right there, staggering in terms of what you eat. And I mean, they will just fill up non-white people with hot dogs and 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 hot dogs. Processed meats, nonsense, hot dogs and Cheetos galore. Uh, and no, I'm not just damaging you. This is damaging your offspring if you even have them. And this is leading you to the obesity as well. Host of health problems. Uh, oh, and then she, she says, healthy young men who are lean but drink more sugar sweetened beverages such as sodas sports drinks and sweetened iced teas have reduced sperm motility compared to men who rarely consume these drinks that these effects were confined to lean men rather than overweight or obese men suggest that they may be due to the promotion of insulin resistance and oxidative stress which are known to negatively influence sperm motility Again, I thought this was so important. Uh, we have our caller down in Florida at the courthouse who says it brags about, hey, I'm trying to get see if I can get me a two gallon water bottle. Water. Eliminate those non-water beverages. Maybe, hey, if you are trying to conceive, let's get rid of the non-water beverages. No sodas. Uh, no sports drinks and Gatorade and all that nonsense. We're not going to Starbucks uh, and getting all those lattes and everything where they dumped all that sugar in it. Water. Water. So important. And so many schools inundated with sodas and sugary beverages. Just water. I'm not even a fan of all those water where they've added like chemicals and coloring and all this too where it's supposed to be no calories like just water not purple water not apple flavor water just water 
let's see I'll share one more and then I'll check see if folks have any thoughts oh and she gets physical activity too um the couch potato lifestyle and impacting your ability to conceive a child I don't remember anyone saying this in like a biology class I mean even if it's not in health like biology wouldn't that be there like if you want to you know increase your chances of, of having robust healthy sperm not having any fertility issues be active don't be you know doing the Netflix and chill uh, and just having a big bean bag where you lounge out for eight hours they and that what we do all day to day right it would be nah we're not going to do any of that like you know get your turkey or whatever but we're going to go take a hike afterwards good 90 minutes the whole family will get some exercise maybe break a sweat we'll come back we'll have water I don't think that's the tradition for most folks though but she says uh, that there has been an increase of exercise maybe not in places where black people suffer with activity deserts uh, but there has been generally an increase in exercise and she says uh, there's a lot of room for improvement 46 percent of adults are not getting the recommended dose of movement residual physical regular physical activity is beneficial for reproductive function as well as cardiovascular and brain health I thought that last portion was so important for fertility and brain health uh, not being stagnant and just hanging out and watching television and she said we don't even know all the data of why this is because people who sit at a desk and work on a computer they don't show this impact on sperm so there's something else happening just sitting when you watch television programs I guess uh, and are vegging out there's something else happening at a physiological level that they don't even understand yet or at least not willing to share with us that's why I said hey get rid of the television it is so powerful it is so addictive so many of us develop those bonds with television at in utero you know from birth we've been hanging out in front of screens and then go to school and hang out in front of screens and just TV all day long and Netflix and uh, it doesn't even have to be TV now because screens are so ubiquitous whether it's your phone your watch tablet whatever it is you just get to hang out and watch Netflix all day long really try as best you can to eliminate that no TV in the house child doesn't need a tablet at five years old uh, I was gonna say something about the IQ test but I'll do oh, okay uh, star six one if folks have any thoughts to share if you're vegging out with turkey day and all that feel free uh, let's see I'll share a few more notes uh, movement she talked about the impact of stress on the quality of sperm man victims of white supremacy are already under a lot of stress so for us I think it would be as much as possible if you're trying to during the time when you're trying to conceive and when you're pregnant just trying as much as possible to mitigate stress uh, not being around people who are stressful maybe make that a part of the planning to have that child like things trying as best you can to be in an environment to really really minimize stress uh, maybe get a team of people together they talk about it takes a, a village to raise a child work on getting that village uh, together in advance so that you can have people to help mitigate uh, just you know if even if it's just little things having someone who can come and help wash the dishes uh, as you start to uh, get a little bit bigger they maybe 
aren't as comfortable standing, things like that to just help mitigate people who can come and help you kind of deal with all the changes uh, that you and your body go through during that period uh, can help a couple deal with all of that stuff, especially the first time around when all of it's so kind of daunting. Um, yeah, to try to minimize because we're already super stressed in the system of white supremacy. So, yeah, just trying to do everything that you can to mitigate some of that during that critical period, uh, because that can have a big role uh, on the health and productivity of that child as well. Uh, let's see. Mm -mm -mm. Oh, one of the footnotes for this chapter I highlighted, she talked about for the sperm banks. Uh, and she said that a lot of people, males specifically, are eliminated because uh, they're overweight, uh, they uh, consumption of alcohol or what have you. Uh, and they said that they have, I guess, IQ tests. The footnote was among sperm seekers. Signs of intelligence are highly prized, especially since sperm can't take IQ tests. Uh, that there's, you know, if, do you have a college degree? That sort of thing. Uh, but I had no idea that they were so picky about what samples they uh, take from males like uh, yeah that is that is staggering I guess I don't since the obesity problem I don't know it might mean that they I, or I guess they said that they only take about 1% at some of the more selective uh, facilities so wow that's I didn't know still learning uh, so that's my notes for chapter 6 let's see chapter 7 mm -mm -mm. This is silent, ubiquitous threats. Uh, uh, uh. She talked about the international agreement to get rid of the 12 most toxic uh, substances. And she said that despite this international agreement, uh, the U.S. has not ratified this agreement to discontinue the use of some of these really poisonous materials and I just don't find any of that to be surprising uh, I think particularly in an area like the US where they have a large population of black people and an aging population of white people I don't think there's going to be a lot of commitment to investing in let's get rid of these chemicals let's invest in infrastructure like I think there's going to be a lot of resistance uh, to these types of measures uh, like in Texas I just want, don't see you know we're going to go in and regulate all of the energy industries and you all are going to be really efficient and you're not going to pollute the water and the air and I just I can't see that at all uh, let's see thought this one was important as well she says not every human being is equally affected however as Norma Kendrick Ph.D., an associate professor of sociology at Rutgers University, New Jersey, writes in Better Safe Than Sorry, while all bodies contain synthetic chemicals, body burdens differ in crucial ways that reflect the social and political organization of risk, gender, and social inequalities. Uh, and she talked about how uh, like females are more exposed to chemicals and like hair products, creams, lotions, things like that, that are marketed specifically to females. But how a lot of males, because of the work environments that they're in and other maybe even risk taking behaviors, tend to be more exposed to some of these dangerous chemicals. Uh, and in my view, this is probably going to be a lot more non-white people being exposed. In fact, I was even remembering we had a report. Mm, 
in the last 30 days about uh, dollar stores and how more people have been going to dollar stores because of the pandemic and economic troubles. Uh, and they said that a lot of the products in dollar stores, they come from overseas. They're not regulated. So those products can be contaminated. Even the packaging that's used for the products can be contaminated. It's not regulated. It can leach into the food and what have you. Harriet A. Washington, she uh, recommended that's one way to try to minimize the toxins that we are consuming to not shop at dollar stores uh, because you just never know uh, what the packaging or what's in those products uh, that you can't see. Unseen dangers, I think that's the name of or silent ubiquitous threats. That's it. You never know what type of silent threats might be in the dollar store products. Um, let's see. And. Oh, but the unequal risk, I think also with that, and I think Harriet A. Washington talked about this as well in uh, a hidden or a terrible thing to waste. If you are a victim of racism, I already said you're subjected to 24 seven stress, even before you're born because of white supremacy, racism, and then all of the toxins in areas where non-white people live, you don't have adequate to healthy, organic, non-polluted food, water, same thing, Flint, Michigan, Newark, uh, all of that is cumulative, right? As opposed to if you're a white person and you can afford, you can have like gallons of, you know, Fiji water delivered right to your doorstep. You can, you know, go to Whole Foods and ball out or have that delivered to your doorstep, too. So you can have all the organic, you know, uh, fresh greens and spinach and kale and arugula, you know, and, and just be great and healthy. Uh, get all the wonderful air purifiers and live in a nice green neighborhood so you don't have all those toxins and pollutants uh, in the air where you reside. It's going to be way different if you get some plastic or what have you in your system or even a little bit of the chemicals and poisons that are we're deluged with as opposed to a black person who is already stressed and doesn't have those resources to do things to try to cleanse their system and offset all of this it's going to have a substantially different impact and I believe Harriet A. Washington talked about that specifically in a terrible thing to waste but yeah I thought that was important her pointing that out as well uh, uh, uh. Yeah, she talked so much of this about children, the impact on children as well. So much to think about for, for folks. If you want to have children and or if you already have children, uh, it is so much information to uh, process. Uh, let's see. Uh, our caller in California uh, should be with us. If you have commentary, line should be open. Yes, sir. Uh, greetings, greetings, callers and listeners. I thought it, I noticed that um, Shannon also says that um, there's the age for females to um, procreate is that the latest is um, 35. That reminded me of um, Dr. Francisca Wilson. And um, in college, I had an associate. I never asked a critical question if he was uh, white or not white because. Um, he was using the term um, Mexican, and he was undocumented. Uh, but he he would donate his sperm like quite quite frequently um, for 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 money and whatnot. And I thought that was um, very interesting as well. It just reminded me of that. And um, just with the whole um, how these chemicals 
and um, so-called food, just how damaging, oh, and the smoking as well, and how it just changes our, um, our sperm. Um, I don't know if I missed it or she's going to get into it later, but I, I, I'm suspecting that if, if a sperm is not in its um, correct form, that could lead to um, certain birth defects and whatnot. And um, also, I think it just, it just switched. But yeah, just um, having um, that sort of, um, just having the, the, the messed up sperm, that could be causing a lot of um, maybe all the so-called autistic diagnosis that um, I've been seeing and that has been very, very normalized. We have uh, a, a ton of um, children who like are said to have a number of disorders, autistic, ADHD, um, Down syndrome. And I'm sure it's, it's from um, the incorrect eating and the incorrect um, food and uh, the smoking. I didn't even know smoke. I knew cigarettes were, were deadly, of course, but cyanide, uh, what is the, the constructive reason to put cyanide in, in anything um, unless you're trying to, to kill a person? Um, yeah, it's just really telling that white people have created uh, this, product called uh, cigarettes, and, and they literally packed it with poison, and then they, they sell it They sell it to us. And that's just very telling that we are in a system of white supremacy where um, so-called life is not valued at all, um, at all. And it's just so tragic because these books are just, I'm always reminded of my victim unit, and then we're full of um, cancer stick smokers, cigarette stick just drinkers, like, like, <laughs> Alcoholics are this a lot, and none of them is following Dr. Francis Foster's recommendations of having um, offspring at um, an older age. Uh, many of them have offspring at the age of 19, 20, don't read, don't put healthy things in their body. So it's just, the sabotage is real, and uh, this book is very, very useful to, to, just to, to just, just for me to be like, hey, you know, I got information from my white person now, you know, maybe they don't care that the stuff I say because I'm mostly quoting black people. Uh, maybe a white person in a word could be more valid. But just this book is uh, really showing me that, um, that, it's just showing me more things that I I know and also letting me know that, um, yeah, their white supremacy, race men, race women, they really have done an excellent job at setting up these, um, the, the, the traps for us to be addicted to them and to build traps to retard us and retard our genes and retard it future generations that we are going to produce with these with these policy genes and I'm doing my line. Many, many addictive traps. Absolutely, sir. Uh you reminded me, I forgot, uh, when she said uh optimal uh, age for to have a child for females uh, before 35 uh, she had talked about the increased risks last week as you age uh, and I said now if you pass, pair that with Dr. Welsing's recommendation that uh, black people not have children before the age of for females uh, not before the age of 30 for males not before the age of 35 and then no more than two years apart that that would give like a really small window for black people to have offspring, particularly black females. Uh, we're really talking like a five-year window uh, for you to be able to have a child uh, if you got to do it by 35, according to Shauna Swan, and then no earlier than 30, according to Dr. Welsing. Like, man, that's uh, 
I mean, talk about pressure, like, man. <laughs> and I think I, I asked that last week. I said, man, maybe maybe folks can think about that. It's not to put you on the spot, but it, did you get a chance to to maybe share that, mill that over with uh, Z's mom? Uh, come to any thoughts that you could share? If you didn't, no words. Just you remind me, reminded me that we mentioned that last week. Yeah, can I have you here? Yes, sir. We can hear you. She, uh, yeah, she, she relayed to me that um, uh, she she definitely didn't um, follow Francesca Bosting's advice because we we didn't know about she didn't know about Francesca Bosting at the time. But um, she she has the become a, a constructive um, um, parent, and um, in hindsight, it, it was it was um, not that much of a of a, a problem having um, Z at the age that she did because she's been able to do what needs to be done to learn how to properly um, take care of um, her offspring. And, 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 and in regards to having um, future offspring, knowing what we know about um, the system, that's not going to happen until um, we, we would know we'll be able to take care of the offspring that we may or may not have until the age of um, 35. Because... Yeah, I I just think it's so um, tragic that many non-white people don't have a, a clue about the system of white supremacy and that they're just bringing more slaves to this um, blender, this, this plantation, that they're going to chew them up and um, put them in the ground or greater confinement or have them going between the legs of a um, white female or a man, white man. So, yeah. I hope that answers the question. Oh yeah, that comprehensive, thorough answer. Much obliged. Much obliged, uh, Z's mom as well. Um, yeah, it's it's so much to to process. I think Dr. Welsing, her name has been mentioned so frequently. Um, she used to talk about that all the time, uh, and and she was a child psychiatrist. Um, she talked about that all the time. I think she saw the the result, the throwaway children and how having uh, parents, attempted parents who don't understand racism, white supremacy, and then have not really uh, made a plan to have an offspring within this environment and to try to do the best that they can uh, within everything that is set up in this system. It just uh, it can be a really traumatic experience. So. Yeah, lots to consider, um, lots to think about before we hit the bedroom in a system of white supremacy racism. Um, Even the breastfeeding, she started with that. Breastfeeding is supposed to be the best thing that you can do as an attempted parent. And then with all the chemicals, she said that some of the uh, toxins, they can be concentrated in the breast milk. So you get another double whammy with it. I mean, layers. Uh, let's see. Uh, retired firefighter in Florida, also with us. Greetings, everyone. Uh, I was uh, just thinking about the uh, prior uh, reading part and uh, Dr. Welsing and what her thoughts were on with uh, P 
parenting and children. Uh, and also, Mr. Fuller, uh, you you mentioned about how how uh, uh, the time period that uh, Dr. Welsing uh, thoughts came up with is basically where I look at it, 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 it it's, it's a description of we don't have any time to waste. Uh, ideally, if a significant number of non-white people were codified, counter-racist codified, uh, what will be eliminated is the holiday quote-unquote season all of it uh, uh, alcohol for drinking would probably take non-white people off the list because they won't won't get the profits that they get from us now uh, cigarettes uh unhealthy foods because we'll we'll be spending our time uh coaching teaching uh ourselves and our younger people uh about the warnings of the use of such items before they are conceived the plans would be mapped out from the black males and black females individually, as well as when we're in contact with each other. Uh, I think those things would make what she presented to us and others very relevant. With the, uh, I think, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think it was 33 with females and 30 with males. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Am I right on that? 33? No, the females. It was, it was younger. I think the females were younger. With, uh, females, 35 for males. Okay, you're right, right. Because she, because she mentioned about how f- females have physical uh, codification that they are physically in adulthood where males aren't. So the males got to have a little bit more time uh, in the process. Uh, But uh, yeah, Uh, the bottom line is, you know, and I'll just, you know, quote Mr. Fuller, we need, that's that's why we need a code. We need to be kind of racist codified, you know, codified in, in everything that we think, say, and do. Uh, that has to be, uh, I mean, yeah, it, it, it'll be, it'll be sometimes where you would not measure up, but you constantly work on improving that, uh, uh, associating with others, uh, that has the same, uh, or similar ideas in mind. And, uh, the, the 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 theory of Dr. Wilson could be met. It could be met if if those if the 
counter racist codified attitude and behavior would would exist. Uh, we we just have too many engage in too many time wasting uh, activity, uh, a lot of incorrect activity. I mean, this just I mean you could just you can just write lists of things that we don't do correctly. Uh, and primarily it's because of what is missing is not having uh, some ideas, constructive ideas and thoughts of our own that's based on logic. I think that's that's where the big missing part is. So we just fill we just fill it in with things that no that normally comes from uh white people. It normally comes from white people. Even the stuff that we eat ultimately. And and a lot of the stuff that that they prepare is designed to profit and preserve beyond its natural use. You know, and so you put that in your mouth or let that go through your your uh your breathing system, it's gonna it's gonna do damage. That's what that's what this lady is talking about. It's gonna do damage to you. You know, uh and you're gonna be addicted to it. Just about every all of these items that I'm hearing that she's talking about, there is some level of addict of addiction to these things. And the elements of the of addiction is placed inside these foods, inside these smoking items, inside these drinking items, to keep you to keep you to keep coming back to get them. You know, that sort of thing. And uh yeah. Uh yeah, at some point in time you gotta start from the exception, you know, the planning process and of course it takes two people when it comes to children. And uh make those and make plans and all of that is is counter racist codification. You know, i I mean I I'm making it sound very simple, but it it is a it is a high task. It is a very very uh significant task that must be must take place amongst uh non white people yeah much obliged retired firefighter in florida uh pretty much everything uh that race or all areas of people activity and then all of the products uh, therein that are manufactured from that system are tainted the water sodas everything uh, in fact you don't even get quality products uh, most of the time can't even just get water fruit now we got skittles and potato chips and that's going to yeah. be contaminated too. Lots of plastic for everybody. Um, anything else folks want to make sure they get in from the first portion of the reading. Uh, Shauna Swan's Countdown. It's 
assuming folks are satisfied for the first portion. I didn't see any other hands, so I'll check back if uh, folks are listening in, getting that second serving of turkey or pumpkin pie. I saw vegan pumpkin pies at the grocery store yesterday. They have, I've seen them before, but now that I have made vegan pumpkin pie repeatedly, that is amazing. It would have to be really awesome at the store for me to not just make my own, but that notwithstanding, uh, if you are grabbing seconds, uh, and are listening in intently, maybe with some other victims, attempted family, bravo. I hope you all have had a constructive time. Uh, take notes, uh, as we listen to the second section, if you have anything you want to jot down or anything, if it's from, uh, the first portion that we read and you did not get to share, just jot it down. We should have time, uh, as we wrap things up. Uh, and the email again, until justice at gmail.com. Uh, let's see. Was there anything else? I missed obesity. Such a big one as well. She talked about that having such a, a big impact on, uh, health active, be active, like really, that's why I said no TV in the house that right there would generally mean you'll be active. You'll be playing. You won't just be in a, uh, sedated state staring at a screen uh if you're you know talking to somebody playing a game maybe even outside then you know you can just worry about all the air pollution but you know something other than just i am totally sedated prone on the couch five hours hand in a bowl of cheetos like worst thing ever that's directly from the text so be active uh, and water. Uh, I would say really be. I think those are probably some of the biggest things that you could do. I would say uh, no non-water beverages. Like your child doesn't know what a soda is, uh, and no television. I suspect those. Are, now I don't have children, but that would just be my guess. And then obviously you don't eat out and such. You know, you uh, prepare meals, eat at home. But I think those would be huge um and just cavities alone like all those goofy uh sugary drinks and caffeine and and all the rest i think just that alone uh you would see such an improvement uh in health and probably behavior and lots of things uh for children everybody parents everybody uh no non-water beverages drink more water and then no television because in addition to is so many things with television but it promotes so much just really horrendous food like it's sodas and non-water beverages are every other commercial and then candy bars and cheetos and mcdonald's and taco i mean it's just an endless parade of bad food uh, all kinds of bad food, ice cream and dairy products and cheese and everything else. She talked about that in the section as well. No television, no non-water beverages if you're going to have uh, children and maybe even preparing for that yourselves if you're going to get ready to conceive because you don't need a whole lot of sugary beverages either if you're going to be parents. Uh, I will pause there and we'll hop back to the text again. So we're in chapter uh, 7. Uh, of countdown and the specific subsection is wreaking hormonal havoc uh, 
write your notes down or what have you if you didn't get to share. And we'll be right back once the second segment concludes. Context of White Supremacy. Wreaking Hormonal Havoc. Once they're inside us, environmental toxins do their damage in a variety of ways. One of the sneakiest is through endocrine disruption, interfering with the body's endocrine, or hormone, system. Endocrine-disrupting chemicals, EDCs, can interfere with the normal function of the body's endocrine system, a complex network of glands and organs that produce and secrete hormones. As you've read, hormones are chemical substances that are produced in one part of the body, then travel, like messengers carrying important information, through the bloodstream to other parts of the body in order to regulate how certain cells and organs fulfill their functions. Many different types of hormones are in the human body. Given the subject of this book, I will focus primarily on the reproductive hormones, particularly estrogen and testosterone, which is the major androgen that stimulates the development of male characteristics. Some EDCs act like imposter hormones and bind to receptor sites where the natural androgen or estrogen is supposed to dock, thereby fooling our bodies into responding to them as if they're the real deal. Sometimes this results in too much or too little of that natural hormone being produced or released. Other times, this can alter the transport of hormones, changing where they go, which may thwart them from doing their assigned tasks. Other EDCs can affect how naturally occurring hormones are broken down or stored in the body, thereby increasing or decreasing the levels of these hormones in the bloodstream. And still other EDCs can alter our body's sensitivity to different hormones. When a synthetic external chemical changes the way a hormone is supposed to act inside the body, physical abnormalities can develop in cells and tissues, and an organ may not function the way it should. EDCs can have antiandrogenic properties or potent estrogenic properties. As you might expect, antiandrogens are particularly problematic for boys, while the estrogenic ones are worse for girls. The breadth of the potentially disruptive influences of EDCs is striking. They have been linked to numerous adverse health effects in almost all biological systems not just the reproductive system, but also the immunological, neurological, metabolic, and cardiovascular systems. To make matters worse, an individual's genetic susceptibility to certain health conditions, coupled with exposures to other chemicals and lifestyle habits, can increase the effects produced by a particular EDC. Endocrine-disrupting chemicals can also have profound effects on the developing brain in ways that can affect a person's gender and sexual identity. You may have heard that the brain is the most powerful sexual organ. Sex therapists often say this because the brain is what activates sexual arousal and responsiveness. Well, here's an interesting twist. In 2014, my colleague Bernie Weiss, Ph.D., who was then a toxicologist at the University of Rochester, spoke in a different way about the brain as the biggest sexual organ in the body. He was referring to how certain environmental chemicals can alter brain function and behavior with different impacts on males and females. 
It's not just what's between a person's legs that reflects his, her, their sex or gender. The brain does, too. Chemicals in our environment may influence not only the development of these sex-determining organs, but also behaviors that are typically different in boys and girls. For example, boys tend to acquire spatial ability, the capacity to understand and remember the spatial relations among objects, earlier, while girls' language skills often develop at a younger age than boys do. My research and that of others has shown that higher exposure to some hormone-influencing chemicals can decrease male-female differences in these kinds of abilities. Once they're mobile, young children are particularly at risk of exposure to chemical-laden household dust because they crawl, play on the floor, and frequently put their hands in their mouths. Because their bodily systems are just developing, Young children are less able to metabolize these chemicals than adults are. Even small exposures can add up. Once these chemicals enter our bodies, at any age, they can be widely distributed throughout various systems from head to toe. How far they can travel in our bodies is truly astonishing. Cringe alert! In 2018, for the first time ever, microplastic particles, nine different types, were found in human stool among volunteers from Finland, the Netherlands, the United Kingdom, Italy, Poland, Russia, Japan, and Austria. If you don't think you're exposed to these chemicals regularly, consider this. While writing their book, Slow Death by Rubber Duck, Canadian environmentalists Rick Smith and Bruce Laurie set up an experiment to examine how products that are commonly used in daily life alter the body's chemical burden, using themselves as subjects. In the summer of 2008, Rick had called and asked me to serve as the phthalate expert on their science experiment and review its protocol and results. Guided by the principle that their exposures had to mimic those of real life, Rick and Bruce focused on chemicals of concern and identified activities that were likely to increase their exposure to these chemicals. Before the experiment began, they determined their personal baselines by having concentrations of these chemicals measured in samples of their blood and urine. They designed a test room in Bruce's condo and stayed there in 12-hour shifts, exposing themselves to the test chemicals by applying personal care products, using antibacterial hand soap, eating canned or packaged foods, drinking coffee or canned soda, and hanging out in the room where the carpet and the couch had just been protected with Stainmaster, which is designed to help materials resist stains. After four days, they collected more urine and blood samples and had them sent to a high-precision lab for analysis. While the levels of the test chemicals increased significantly, from baseline to four days later, there was one standout, as Rick noted in the book. The really dramatic result was that as a result of my product use, my MEP, monoethyl phthalate, levels, one of the chemicals that Shauna Swan had connected with male reproductive problems, went through the roof, from 64 to 1,410 nanograms per milliliter. This was a direct result of smearing himself with scented toiletries, including hair care products, shaving gel, deodorant, fragrance, and lotions.
as well as using scented liquid soap and a plug-in scented oil in the test room. Since 1999, the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, NHANES, has assessed the health of 2,500 adults and children in changing representative population samples, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has periodically measured the levels of environmental chemicals in these study participants. This research tells us about who is being exposed to which chemicals and when, which helps scientists map exposures and the associated risks across different populations. In other words, it allows us to find exposure hotspots and study them. This is important because while we can ask people how much they smoke or how much Tylenol they take to try to gauge the levels of these chemicals in their bodies, we can't do the same with environmental chemicals. After all, none of us knows exactly how much we're exposed to these chemicals or how much of them may be in our bodies, so asking such questions would be pointless. Instead, environmental chemists have developed methods to measure even low levels of chemicals in tiny amounts of body fluid, usually urine and blood, but also breast milk and others. Not surprisingly, the number of chemicals tested has increased over time, as new ones become more commonly used in commercial products and or raise concerns. For reproductive health, phthalates, bisphenol A, flame retardants, and pesticides are of paramount concern, with phthalates having the strongest influences on the male side of the equation, while BPA is a particularly bad actor on the female side. Given how quickly not only industry but also the public embraced better living through chemistry, including plastic and other modern chemically-based conveniences, it's not surprising that we saw a decline in sperm counts after the 1950s, a time when chemical production was rapidly increasing. Let's take a closer look at these chemical culprits' effects. Phthalates a large, diverse class of chemicals, phthalates are found in plastic and vinyl, floor and wall coverings, medical tubing and medical devices, and toys, as well as in a vast array of personal care products, including nail polishes, perfumes, hairsprays, soaps, shampoos, and others. Phthalates are widely distributed throughout the body and can be measured in urine, blood, and breast milk. The most concerning phthalates are those that can decrease the production of male hormones such as testosterone, the antiandrogenic phthalates, that the male needs to become fully masculinized, changes that can make him more likely to be infertile or to simply have a lower sperm count. In this respect, the three particularly bad actors are di-2-ethylhexyl phthalate, DEHP, dibutyl phthalate, DBP, and butyl benzyl phthalate, BBZP. Because of their reproductive toxicity, these three phthalates are scheduled to be gradually phased out in the European Union, along with others. That's not the case in the United States, though. Of these three notorious phthalates, DEHP appears to be the most damaging to the male reproductive system. A 2018 review of research on the subject found robust evidence of an association between DEHP and DBP exposure and male reproductive outcomes, including shorter AGD, 
reduced semen quality, and lower testosterone levels with DEHP, and reduced semen quality and a longer time to achieving pregnancy with DBP. Men with high exposure to phthalates during adulthood also tend to have lower sperm counts and more abnormally shaped sperm. As you saw in Chapter 5, prenatal exposure to antiandrogenic phthalates can alter male reproductive development in the infant, including the size of the genitals. Preliminary data suggests that by early adulthood, men whose mothers had higher concentrations of several phthalates during pregnancy have reduced testicular volume, which is associated with lower testicular function, including worse sperm parameters. It's an unfortunate cluster of effects from multiple perspectives. Studies have shown that young men with higher levels of phthalate metabolites, which are byproducts of metabolizing the chemicals in our bodies, have poorer sperm motility and morphology. This is bad news, since higher levels of phthalate metabolites also are associated with increased sperm apoptosis, a term for what is essentially cellular suicide. It's safe to assume that no man wants to hear that his sperm are self-destructing. Phthalates are bad news for women's ovaries, too. High levels of phthalate exposure have been linked with anovulation, when ovaries don't release an egg during a menstrual cycle, and polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS, a hormonal disorder involving abnormal ovarian function and elevated levels of androgens. Moreover, there's some evidence that higher blood levels of metabolites of certain phthalates may be linked with primary ovarian insufficiency, a.k.a. premature ovarian failure. In addition to potentially moving up the timing of menopause, it appears that heavy exposure to phthalates from personal care products in particular is associated with a greater frequency of hot flashes in women ages 45 to 54. Yet most women don't realize that their grooming practices may come with this hidden cost to their well-being at midlife. In 2002, a coalition of environmental and public health organizations tested 72 name-brand beauty products for the presence of phthalates and found that nearly three-quarters of the products, including deodorants, fragrances, hair gels and mousses, and hand and body lotions, contained these chemicals. In 2004, the European Union banned the use of DEHP and DBP in cosmetics. While the United States hasn't followed suit, some companies have voluntarily decided to phase out their use in personal care products. That's at least a step in the right direction. Bisphenol A BPA was first synthesized in 1891, but not until the period between the two world wars were its commercial possibilities explored. In the mid-1930s, British medical researcher Edward Charles Dodds at the University of London identified the estrogenic properties of BPA, and for the next several years, he continued testing chemical compounds as he searched for a powerful synthetic estrogen. He found it in diethylstilbestrol, better known as DES, estimated to be five times more potent than estradiol, the most powerful estrogen that occurs naturally in mammals. Starting in the 1940s, DES was used for a range of therapeutic purposes, including those related to menstruation and menopause. 
The most dangerous use by pregnant women to prevent miscarriage wasn't banned until 1971, when it was discovered that it caused a rare cancer in the women's daughters. Though it has a similar chemical structure to DES, BPA was never used for pharmaceutical purposes. Instead, its utility was found to be in plastics. Starting in the early 1950s, BPA was used in epoxy resins that were incorporated into protective coatings on metal equipment, piping, and the lining of food cans, as well as into adhesives, non-skid coatings, and plastics. Over time, BPA started being used in hard plastics, electronics, safety equipment, thermal receipt paper, and other everyday items, until it became ubiquitous, despite that its estrogen-like properties continued to lurk in the background. Over time, it has been discovered that BPA exposure, particularly occupational exposure, is related to decreased sperm quality in men. When researchers from Kaiser Permanente conducted a study with factory workers in China to evaluate the effects of exposure to BPA, they found that men with detectable levels of BPA in their urine were more than four times as likely to have lower sperm counts, more than three times as likely to have poorer sperm vitality, and more than twice as likely to have lower sperm motility than those with undetectable BPA in their urine there can be other damaging ripple effects. The sons of men with high BPA exposure often have a shorter AGD, the span from the anus to the base of the penis. And when researchers examined sexual satisfaction in men who worked in factories that manufactured BPA and epoxy resin, they found that these men had higher rates of sexual dysfunction including more erectile dysfunction and ejaculation difficulty, and decreased sexual desire. The potential effects on women's reproductive health are even greater, in part because by mimicking the female hormone estrogen, BPA can induce estrogen-like changes in the body. There's compelling evidence that women who have high blood levels of BPA may have an increased risk of fertility challenges, including difficulty becoming pregnant, whether this is because the chemical has a detrimental effect on the function of various reproductive organs or on the proper cycling of estrogen levels, which is crucial for ovulation, isn't clear. Among women who do get pregnant, those who have the highest levels of conjugated BPA in their blood have an 83% increased risk of miscarriage during the first trimester. Women who have higher BPA concentrations in their urine during the first trimester of pregnancy are likely to give birth to daughters with a significantly shorter AGD. BPA is also believed to contribute to polycystic ovary syndrome, or PCOS, given that studies in humans have found that blood concentrations of BPA are higher in women with PCOS than in reproductively healthy women. In addition, Exposure to BPA during early life and adulthood has been correlated with poor egg quality and named as a possible culprit in premature ovarian insufficiency, leading to an earlier age of menopause. Throughout a woman's life, BPA might as well be considered a nemesis to her reproductive health. Flame retardants. Since the 1970s, 
Chemical flame retardants have been added to numerous materials to prevent or slow the growth of fire in foam and upholstered furniture, mattresses, carpets, children's pajamas, computers, and other common products. There are dozens upon dozens of different flame retardants. While some have been removed from the market due to health or safety concerns, these gone-but-not-forgotten chemicals don't break down easily. Rather, they persist in the environment and can build up in fatty tissues in humans and animals. The latter means we ingest these chemicals from the animal fat we consume. Over the years, flame-retardant chemicals have been found to have adverse effects on human health. A class called polybrominated diphenyl ethers, PBDEs, is associated with neurodevelopmental problems in children and altered thyroid function in pregnant women. These chemicals also exhibit a range of endocrine-disrupting activities, from estrogenic action to anti-estrogenic properties to anti-androgenic activity. Given these effects, it's not surprising that research has found that it takes longer for women with higher PBDE concentrations in their blood to get pregnant. The risks don't end once a woman gets pregnant, though, because there's also evidence that high blood levels of these chemicals are associated with an increased risk of miscarriage. Meanwhile, prenatal exposure to high levels of PBDEs can alter the timing of the offspring's puberty, most notably leading to a later onset of menstruation in girls, but early puberty in boys. When a developing fetus is exposed to PBDEs and other brominated flame retardants in utero, these chemicals can have disruptive effects on the fetus's endocrine system, primarily on thyroid function, but also on reproductive function and neurodevelopment. Evidence is also mounting that these chemicals, like many others, can build up in human breast milk and be transferred to babies who are nursing. In a study published in 2017, researchers examined PBDE concentrations in human breast milk collected in North America, Europe, and Asia over a 15-year period. Total PBDE concentrations were more than 28 times higher in breast milk in North America than in Europe or Asia. So much for the purity of mother's milk. Pesticides Pesticides, including herbicides, insecticides, and fungicides, also can have adverse effects on human health, including our reproductive potential and endocrine systems. Depending on the chemical agent, these effects can include competitive binding to estrogen, progesterone, or androgen receptors. Alternatively, they can inhibit androgen or estrogen production, availability, or action, or potentially increase the production of female hormones such as estrogen or progesterone. Still others can cause disruptions in thyroid hormone production or action. It's a bit of a free-for-all. In the summer of 1977, a small group of pesticide production workers in Lathrop, California, were worried about how the chemicals were affecting their health. As one worker at the Occidental Chemical Plant recalled, it was rumored that anybody that worked in that department for more than two years couldn't produce children, and I haven't. Soon the results of testing revealed substance behind these rumors. Many workers on the production line were found to have abnormally low sperm counts, 
as little as zero in some cases. Their sterility was eventually linked to their exposure to dibromochloropropane, DBCP, which had been widely used on pineapple and banana plantations and was once the most heavily used pesticide in the United States, until it was banned from use in 1979. Soon after that, workers who had long-term exposure to ethylene dibromide, EDB, from treating fruit fly infestation in papayas in Hawaii, were found to have significant decreases in sperm quality compared to workers from a nearby sugar refinery. In South Africa, the insecticide DDT is still widely used in an effort to control malaria. In addition to having detrimental effects on the reproductive development of various forms of wildlife, researchers found that DDT exposure was associated with impaired semen quality and external urogenital birth defects in males born to mothers whose houses were sprayed. They also found that adult men living in villages where the houses were routinely sprayed with this endocrine-disrupting chemical have higher estrogen and testosterone concentrations. In 2000, I launched the Study for Future Families, which examined semen quality in men recruited from four very different parts of the country. We found that the most dramatic differences in these reproductive parameters were between men from rural central Missouri and urban Minneapolis. The Minnesota men had twice as many moving sperm as those in central Missouri, which had far greater quantities of farmland and pesticide use. To test the possibility that pesticide exposure could be to blame, my colleagues and I selected a group of men in whom all sperm parameters were low and a group of their peers who had high values for all sperm parameters, then measured pesticides in their urine. You can probably guess the results. The Missouri men had been exposed to several herbicides and insecticides and had worse sperm quality. Pesticide exposure can also occur when people consume pesticide-contaminated foods, but it's not clear to what extent this can affect reproductive health in men. In a 2015 study from Spain, researchers examined urinary concentrations of certain pesticide metabolites in men at an infertility clinic and found that sperm concentration and total sperm count were lower in men with higher concentrations of four different pesticide byproducts in their urine. There also was a significant adverse association between the percentage of modal sperm and metabolite concentrations of three different pesticides in their urine. Women don't get a free pass when it comes to pesticides either. In a study involving 1,710 pregnant women and their male spouses in Greenland, Ukraine, and Poland, researchers examined the women's blood samples for the presence of certain pesticides and whether they had a history of miscarriage or stillbirth. Women who had higher blood levels of two pesticides, one of the PCBs, CB153, and DDE, a metabolite of DDT, had a significantly higher risk of pregnancy loss. Some scientific evidence also suggests that it may take longer for women who have high exposure to organochlorine pesticides to get pregnant. These findings don't just apply to farm workers. To some degree, depending on a particular pesticide's toxicity and the person's level of exposure, exterminators, gardeners, greenhouse workers, and florists could also be at risk. 
So could people who consume, usually without even realizing it, a high volume of foods and beverages that have pesticide residues. Other under-the-radar EDCs The hidden hormonal threats don't stop there. Higher levels of perfluoroalkyl compounds, PFCs, which are stain, water, and grease-repellent chemicals found in a wide range of consumer products, including fast food packaging, paper plates, stain-resistant carpets, and cleaning solutions, in men's blood and semen are correlated with a reduction of semen quality, testicular volume, penile length, and anogenital distance. Some evidence suggests that women with a moderate to high exposure to PCBs, polychlorinated biphenyls, from eating contaminated fish are susceptible to shortened menstrual cycles and reduced fecundity. Despite being banned in the United States, PCBs persist in the environment and accumulate in the food chain. In a noteworthy study, Russian boys who were found to have high blood concentrations of certain dioxins which are byproducts from industrial practices that persist in the environment, at age eight or nine had lower sperm counts, concentrations, and modal sperm counts at age 18 or 19. Dioxin can adversely affect a woman's reproductive health, too. An explosion in 1976 at a chemical factory near Seviso, Italy, led to the highest known population exposure to a dioxin called TCDD, which is short for 2378-tetrachlorodibenzo-P-dioxin. Researchers measured blood levels of TCDD among 601 women ages 30 and younger and tracked their health over 20 years. Those who had high blood concentrations of TCDD had double the risk of endometriosis as their peers who had lower levels. In addition, High blood levels of TCDD were associated with a longer time to pregnancy and double the risk of infertility. If it sounds like we're living in an alphabet soup of evil chemicals, well, we are. And this list doesn't even include the pharmaceuticals we're exposed to. One more kicker. Contrary to the widely held assumption that the dose makes the poison, which was based on the notion that only a high enough concentration of a toxic substance could cause harm, endocrine-disrupting chemicals often don't behave this way. Rather, they can have harmful impacts even at very low doses. These low doses occur not from occupational exposures or industrial accidents, but with ordinary, everyday contact, such as simply putting on makeup or body lotion or even carrying a book around in a plastic bag. Regrettable Substitutions It would be nice to think that when a particular chemical is found to be harmful and others are substituted for it during the manufacturing process, the problem is solved. But sadly, it doesn't always work out that way, since the chemicals that are substituted can have the same effects as the chemicals they are replacing. This pattern played out in the 1970s when DDT was thought to be a safe replacement for the pesticide-led arsenate, which was found to be neurotoxic. When DDT also was found to be neurotoxic, it was replaced with organophosphate pesticides, another class that also has neurotoxic effects that interfere with a child's brain development. In my own studies, 
we saw this as well. During the 10 years, 2000 to 2010, between recruitment for our two large studies of pregnant women, people's exposure to di-2-ethylhexylphthalate, DEHP, a chemical used as a plasticizer, had declined 50%, due in part to its ban in children's toys. Without question, the ban was a good thing for public health and environmental health, except that in the meantime, the DEHP was replaced by chemical substitutes, including diisononyl phthalate, DINP, which turned out to be as damaging to male reproductive development as DEHP. Similarly, while PBDEs were banned in 2004, one of the chemicals used to replace them has turned out to be nearly as dangerous. When it was released by Dow Chemical Company in 2011, polymeric FR, which is used mostly behind roofs and walls, was touted as being an example of breakthrough sustainable chemistry. But it turns out that its breakdown compounds look very much like old flame retardants, toxic. Another example, since bisphenol S was substituted for bisphenol A in many products touted as being BPA-free, it has become apparent that these products also may interfere with endocrine function in ways that could promote premature puberty, obesity, and damage to a woman's eggs. I'm sure you get the picture. The trouble is, there is nothing to stop regrettable substitution, a practice in which manufacturers replace a harmful chemical with another chemical that may turn out not to be a safe alternative. This switcheroo can happen when industries respond to public outcry or regulatory pressures about a chemical's potential health effects by replacing one chemical that has been identified as harmful with a new one the public assumes is safe, but that doesn't always turn out to be true. As Ruthann Rudell, MS, a toxicologist at the Silent Spring Institute, a research center in Newton, Massachusetts, told a writer for the New York Times, sometimes we environmental scientists think we are playing a big game of whack-a-mole with the chemical companies. It may be a fun game for kids, but we shouldn't be playing it with our reproductive health. Context of white supremacy. Uh, so we wrapped up chapter seven. We will begin next Thursday, uh, part three, the reverberating fallout. Uh, hmm, this reminds me, chapter eight reminds me of Judith Reisman's book. Um, excuse me, Judith Ben-Layson's book, You Are What Your Grandparents Ate. These don't just have impacts, detrimental impacts on you, your children, your grandchildren. The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Uh, do not wait till the last minute if you have commentary to share, especially if you didn't get to speak with us during the first audio segment. Uh, the email again until justice at gmail dot com. Uh, let me nab finish out our email first and then I'll get to the callers. Let's see. Okay. 
Chapter 7. Uh, this is our investor. Uh, he continues. Number two, they designed a test room in Bruce's condo. As a result of my product, use my MEP monoethyl phthalate levels connected to male reproduction went through the roof. No place is safe in the global system of racism, white supremacy. She said, you, even if you could be put in like one of those hypo, hypoallergenic bubbles, even then, there'd probably still be material from the construction of the bubble and whatever else and nothing. Not to mention where you're going to get your water from. They pipe that in from Flint, I'm sure. Uh, number, number two, three, three. The public embraced better living through chemistry, including plastics. It's not surprising that we saw a decline in sperm counts after the 1950s. I am not sure non-white victims had a lot of choice in the matter. 1950s, I mean, that's like before the Civil uh, Rights Act. Um, depends on when we're talking 1950s. That could even be before the uh, Brown v. Board of Education. So, I mean, yeah. Uh, number four, uh, regrettable substitutions. This is characteristic of the global system of racism, white supremacy, change without improvement. That is one of my favorite lines from uh, Toni Morrison, The Bluest Eye, which is the second book that we read in the long, illustrious history of the cows uh, book club. Change without improvement. Top 10, one of my favorite books all time to this day. Uh, that's as far as we got. I have to get the rest next week. Uh, let's see. Uh, get to the callers. Uh, Irie should be with us. We didn't hear from her first time around. Uh, good to hear from you. Did you have commentary, ma'am? Yes. Uh, good evening, everybody. Hotel. Um, okay, so I'm late coming in, but I caught the second. Uh, half, and um, I want to say I suspect whenever scientists or people that keep data or, you know, speak about data say that something hasn't been um, founded yet or hasn't been, you know, that, that there's no data on something, I can't remember what she said it was about exactly, I, I feel like it, it, I feel like it's just data that hasn't been shared publicly because, or hasn't hasn't been shared with the rest of the professionals in that particular people activity. Um, you know, as another way to um, obfuscate and just withhold information, um, because you know it's a lot of legal liability, and then it's also, you know, they just want people to know less. Um, than necessary. That's one of the um, things that they like to execute, especially when it comes to this kind of stuff. Uh, as far as the um, the use of the BPA and the BBA blah 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 plus stuff, you know, um, I've noticed that. Um, okay, so the industrial industry and the the, ind the energy industry, which is also like industrial, but industrial when it comes to products and, and the in energy industry when it comes to literal like electricity or like nuclear energy. So what I found out 
um, is that they'll go in initially with an in, with an intention to use something for one thing, i.e., nuclear for bombs and destruction. But then they'll say, "Oh wait!" Like they said, "Oh, we can actually use these, you know, like make reactors and then like have power plants and." you know, use that for electricity, and that's a bad idea. So with what she was saying about the initial use of um, the BPAs and everything, they said, okay, well, um, let's use it instead for this, the pharmaceutical stuff that we can't use it for that, but we, we don't believe in not having, not making any money off of this. We're going to make some money off of this some kind of way. So let's put it in the cans and in the in the tape and the this and the that. And <clears throat> in the process, they'll expose non-white people and powerless white people to these these uh, molecules and everything. And then, you know, when the reports start coming in from people having adverse effects, you know, there's no real governance by the EPA, <clears throat> excuse me, or the FDA, because they work hand in hand with this sort of thing to say, okay, we'll stop production. You know, there's too many people saying that they have this and this, and then they're not required to report the stuff half the time. So then it comes out, oh, what's going on? Oh, that's, what a coincidence. You just so happen to be putting this in, you know, baby bottles. You know, that's so weird. <laughs> and they'll have that collection of data, again, that they keep to themselves until they're either forced to give it because, you know, lawsuits or someone goes in undercover and and does some type of internal investigation or, or the whistle is blown, to use that metaphor. And um, I'm wondering how much of the... Um, the hyperactivity, which you said, polycystic ovary um, syndrome. I'm wondering how much of that some friends of mine have because uh, in researching for one of my friends who was presenting issues that look like lupus, she also told me that she had that issue and there was like she had um, lactation uh, issues and she's never given birth and never been pregnant. She also has issues with what she call, calls um, lady fingers or whiskers, not lady fingers, that's a dessert, pardon me. But, you know, like the lady whiskers, like she has like not many, but kind of thick hair that grows in on her chin that she has to wax. And she also has um, like tenderness in her chest area under the arms and um <clears throat> A lot of acne that is particularly on the lower part of the face, so cheeks, jaw, um, and under the neck. Like when a when a man, you know, that is sensitive to razor bumps shave, it, it kind of looks has the same effect. And she told me that's what she had. So now I'm wondering how much of that plus the other things that she was showing are related to. What what I just heard about, but you know, tacky, trashy, terroristic. Um, I know for to me, I'm pretty sure 
once they found out that this stuff was causing the issues with, you know, the heightened estrogen or the body believing, you know, that it was estrogen entering in the body and doing the stuff with that antigen or whatever she said it was, I'm pretty sure they were able, they thought immediately, let's weaponize this. I could be incorrect, but I think history will prove me right. And I'll mute my line. Thank you. Much obliged, Irie, in Louisiana. Um, what are you doing putting it in the, the baby formula? Everything, man. Everything. Nothing sacred. Uh, let me see. Let me make sure we can have... Uh, hopefully nobody's waiting until the last minute if you have commentary on hand. That biscuit, cornbread. We should have had cornbread for Thanksgiving. Like, I love good roll, but cornbread mm. but put all that down for a second if you have any commentary you want to get in on the book obesity she's talked so much about obesity hopefully if you all are together with family friends so called uh, get outside you can go walk around the neighborhood walk around the block uh, if there's a school nearby you could go to a track and you know get some get some laps in i am talking as a west coast person where it's only like seven o'clock so so uh maybe if it's almost 11 maybe you can do that tomorrow but uh yes get exercise in uh maybe as opposed to doing all of the uh negro friday antics go for a hike warm weather go to the beach go to the lake uh, any of the other folks who dialed in with a hand up commentary that you want to get in our caller in California or retired firefighter uh, yes I was uh, just thinking that uh, in the uh, profession that I uh, had uh, for all of those years I probably can be a uh, test subject uh, when I think about all of the fires that I uh, was in, or as they say, fighting, <laughs> uh, it's not so much of of uh, the actual uh, fire itself after you have brought it under control. Uh, and it's and the the place is smoldering, whether it's a building or or it's it's uh, outside in a in a forest like environment, uh, and you don't have your uh, self contained breathing apparatus on, uh, because it could be uncomfortable, and and you know uh, after it you having it on for a long period of time and you don't have it on, uh, you would inhale. You could write a psychopedia on the different things that, uh, that's involved into, uh, something burning, whether it's inside of a warehouse, somebody's house or in a wooded area. Uh, then you're talking about the the normalcy of emergency medical work uh you know the 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 practices that have that people have been trained on with the pandemic 
I had been doing that since the 1980s at some level, you know, wearing gloves, mask, you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, cleaning yourself if you're in an environment where a lot of people were coughing, you know, such things. Uh, uh, it can be very complicated in some cases, but, uh, I haven't, uh, experienced any, uh, any, uh, health problems that I know about <laughs> as of yet. So, but there have been a lot of, uh, coworkers that, uh, retired and didn't make, didn't make it to, uh, two years after retirement before they were dead. You know, so, it, it, I mean, it's quite typical of that job in itself. Uh, not just in a fire itself, but just the nature of the job that you can be exposed to a lot of different things. And I'm pretty sure it would, it would, it would, uh, uh, go all the way to, uh, the means and ability of, of reproduction. Uh, it can affect, uh, from that standpoint, including what she was talking about with plastics and all of that. You know, I think I've been to just about anything, everything that was burning <laughs> from people to, uh, materials in itself. And, uh, yeah, just thinking about that as I'm listening to the reading. Thank you. Mm. Much obliged. She had that whole section talking about uh, the uh, toxic materials or dangers from uh, flame retardant uh, materials uh, and breathing all that in so I can't even imagine when some of that material is uh, a flame and uh, now you've got all, everything the inhaling from the combustion of those materials so yeah and uh, sometimes even the chemicals that they use to put out the fires so yeah that's you know all kinds of uh, exposure there um, let's see any, any of the other folks who dialed in with a hand up uh, commentary that you all wanted to get in I'll double check, I guess, before uh, we get out. I'll get some of my notes in as well. Uh, she emphasized again in Chapter 7, uh, to make matters worse, an individual's genetic susceptibility to certain health conditions coupled with exposure to other chemicals and lifestyle habits can increase the effects produced by a particular endocrine disrupting chemical. Uh, and I've said that, you know, victims of racism it will be a cumulative effect with the lead in the water and probably lead in the house because they talked about that too uh, and then bad foods and the bus depot is next to your house with all the noise and poison there so I mean it'll be a cumulative effect um, oh I thought this was so important too that's what so we had in chapter 4 with Alfred Kinsey and talking about gender fluidity right and how that's such a great thing she comes back again endocrine disrupting chemicals poisons can also have profound effects on the developing brain in ways that can affect a person's gender and sexual identity 
you may have heard that the brain is the most powerful sex organ sex therapists often say this because the brain is what activates sexual arousal and responsiveness well here's an interesting twist in 2014 my colleague bernie weiss phd who was then a toxicologist at the university of rochester spoke in a different way about the brain as the biggest sexual organ in the body he was referring to how certain environmental chemicals can alter brain function and behavior with different impacts on males and females now again if this is the case like full stop pause on everything like again no one should be mistreated regardless of their sexual choices or what have you but if this is accurate research can you know bear this out like whoa before we go changing all the laws and school curriculum and you know now we got to have non-binary everything and wait a minute like is this in any way shape form the result of all these poisons is that's what's happening with all this altering of behavior and people having all this gender confusion gender fluidity they want to call it super important she says my research and that of others has shown that higher exposure to some hormone influencing chemicals can decrease male female differences in these kind of abilities once their mobile young children are particularly at risk exposure to chemical laden household dust because they crawl play on the floor and frequently put their hands in their mouths we talked about that with um lead exposure specifically from uh lead paint uh there a lot of times they will uh warehouse black children in areas residences where there's lead paint and they never invested to have it properly removed so it's still there to poison the inhabitants who will be disproportionately black people and just as they see, you're crawling around on the floor at chips or the dust or you know whatever and they put it in their mouth sometimes they eat the chips all the rest of it um let's see even the impact they they said of scented toiletries hair care products shaving gel deodorant fragrance lotions scented liquid soap uh and plug-in scented oil all of that uh it would be uh, even i know here in the pacific northwest it is very popular like making your own soap making your own uh lotions dishwashing soap deodorant fragrance lotions all of that is very popular uh here in these like i know non-white people who do this some who've done this for years um that right there could be one component of counter racism like i will make soap i will make my own soap make my own hair care products make my own lotions deodorant you know all that stuff that way i won't be poisoning myself and i'm not that's one way that i can cut out having to invest in white people's products simple thing but that is a huge and that's also not only is making your own soaps and and natural uh personal care products is that really popular here but getting all of the uh green environmentally sound organic uh natural products super popular uh in this region out here in the really the whole west coast california as well 
let's see. So much of this coming back to uh, fertility uh, and then even being a male, being a female. If you're trying to be universal man, universal woman, and then you've got all these chemicals that are disrupting your ability to do so. Uh, says the most concerning phthalates. Uh, phthalates are those that can decrease the production of male hormones such as testosterone that the male needs to become fully masculinized changes that can make him more likely to be infertile or to simply have a lower sperm count in this respect the three particularly bad actors are and she names them specifically but that's again I think it's so important she again she talks about how in the US these chemicals have not been phased out I again submit substantial population of non-white people here older aging population of whites why or one contributing factor as to why this would not be a priority who cares let's keep all these uh, uh, emasculating phthalates in the environment particularly if they're going to disrupt a lot of non-white males uh, let's see and prenatal exposure to these chemicals can alter male reproductive development in the infant including the size of the genitals so important uh, I thought and just again to have the repetition there's so many different elements uh, different layers or different ways uh, that sexual development reproductive health is being attacked uh, and I, don't, I just I don't think this is you know as I think Irie was talking about this is generally not widely known information at least not to my knowledge um, same thing I said too. areas with a higher population of black people they said in South Africa still using DDT they got whole documentaries uh, about DDT and all the damage and birth defects uh, that it's responsible for and other suffering and misery uh, from this poison still using it in South Africa where they have a huge population of black people uh, let's see and they said in addition to having detrimental effects on the reproductive development of various forms of wildlife researchers found that DDT exposure was associated with impaired semen quality and external urogenital birth defects in males born to mothers whose houses were sprayed they also found that adult men living in villages where the houses were routinely sprayed with this endocrine disrupting chemical have higher estrogen and testosterone concentrations all of that no accident deliberately they had campaigns in medical apartheid we talked about where they wanted to uh, decrease the populations of black people so all of this by design that would just be the assumption that this is a deliberate chemical and biological warfare with the intent of causing these uh, emasculating effects uh, on males and lower levels of testosterone and lower qualities of sperm like all of that by design and again we talked about this in medical apartheid Harriet A. Washington gets two mentions for the day um, oh, organics now I have been consuming uh, mostly organic products for a while that's not really I generally just you know try and say plant-based and you know get those fruits and veggies in drink your water but I generally do organic uh, to try to get away from those uh, pesticides she writes pesticide exposure can also occur when people consume pesticide contaminated foods but it's not clear to what extent this can affect reproductive health in men in a 2015 study from Spain researchers examined urinary concentrations of certain pesticide metabolites in men 
at an infertility clinic and found that sperm concentration and total sperm count were lower in men with higher concentrations of four different pesticide byproducts in their urine and she has several anecdotes uh reports really uh talking about uh people being exposed to these different pesticides and food being one of the ways uh we've had dr lathan on other guests where they research food health uh, and they've talked about if you can get organic um just in terms of in my opinion trying to minimize it's no way you can totally eliminate because everything has been sullied but to the degree that you can trying to minimize the amount of chemicals and poisons that you consume you just try to do that the best that you can and that's one uh, that I think is a worthy investment minimize uh, those uh, chemicals uh, and pesticides and what have you if you can get uh, organic I know sometimes it can be more expensive that certainly is and check out the list of the uh, I think it's called the clean 15 and the dirty dozen where if you don't want to invest in getting exclusively organic there are certain items that are either lower or just naturally they don't have pesticides that you can use I think avocados is one uh, so if you don't want to splurge on organic avocados you can just get regular avocados I think there are a few others I don't remember them off the top of my head but uh, I would definitely err on avoiding the ones that are on the dirty dozen list that tend to have a really high level uh, of pesticides I think like cherry a lot of my favorite fruits and vegetables are on that list I think like cherries uh, strawberries broccoli stuff that I would tend to eat like on a daily basis is on that list uh, that I, I just never buy strawberries unless they're organic I never buy cherries unless they're organic I never buy broccoli unless it's organic um, I'd have to look at the list to see but there's some others that are I think asparagus are on that list oh they're on the clean 15 you can get non-organic asparagus uh, they're supposed to be very low uh, in toxin and pesticides and what have you naturally for whatever reason uh, but yeah check that out that list is online it's updated pretty regularly uh, but I think that's one way to try and uh, mitigate fewer poisons fewer poisons uh, oh and the drugs and the water I thought that was so important too uh, to the degree that you can I know some places throughout the US they have free uh, natural spring water uh, you just have to get you know your container or what have you, you can go fill it up uh, they have those throughout Washington State and other areas um, to the degree that you can get uh, uncontaminated clean water or if you want to invest uh, in your residence in a reverse osmosis pump uh, they can be a few hundred bucks uh, but hey that way you have great clean water uh, to use for all of your cooking drinking needs uh, for you and your family uh, just uh, that alone I'll make sure I get that passage and she said pesticide oh that's not the right one pharmaceutical drugs are likely lurking in our water supply because currently most municipal water treatment facilities are unable to remove them from drinking water this means that we're consuming trace amounts of pharmaceutical agents including anagalesics antibiotics anticoagulants and she gives the long list and then ends with uh, these are all endocrine disrupting chemicals uh, on a different level. Oh, this is one of the footnotes even. Uh, and she says uh, lotions and all that other stuff, hair care products, shampoo, all this is running into the water. Their chemical ingredients are not all filtered out before they reach your tap, which means this is yet another way 
endocrine disrupting chemicals can get into your body so uh, to the degree that you can uh, if you can go natural springs uh, I've got some of them and pure just that water tastes so much better uh, if you can get uh, one of those really high quality filters uh, for your residents or find another way that you can get water that is less contaminated do what you can I think it tastes better and uh, I think you will reap the health benefits of getting water that has not been poisoned uh, let's see I'll double check uh, any other folks commentary thoughts they want to make sure they get in before they go and uh, hang out with the family a bit more before calling in an evening oh good um, do you have any glass oh I'm sorry any glass water bottles that you would um, recommend uh, I don't own a glass uh, water bottle although I do know that uh, glass is certainly preferable to all of that plastic and everything exactly what she's been talking about in the book and how a lot of that can leach uh, into your water uh, so uh, I would just say try not to spend a whole lot of uh, money on it get something that's good quality if it's uh, if you're talking about like a smaller one that's more of a portable one uh, or I guess it just depends on the size like if you want a smaller portable one or one of the really large ones that's like you know gallons uh, of water so that you can have it like in a stand or something where people can come and get a glass and that sort of thing um, but yeah I don't I don't know a specific brand uh, to, rec uh, to recommend uh, but I would say that is way better like even though it could be a little heavy and um, I don't know it shouldn't be out of control pricey but it might be a little bit more expensive than just the regular cheapy plastic that you can get at Target or what have you but it is worth you know paying maybe an extra nickel or so because that is a natural much said that is a an improvement when we talk about change without improvement that is an improvement all you have to worry about there is don't drop it no shards but um, yeah I'm sure you can check around you can probably go to like the dollar store or uh, yeah like glad like glass jars are not difficult to acquire bottles and things so yeah just um, yeah, be prudent, but that's an excellent switch. Much better way to have your water than all that plastic stuff. Uh, let's see. Any other folks comments that they want to add in? I guess if anybody does know any uh, uh, glass containers that they would recommend uh, or healthier container. I know so many folks, that's such a big thing for especially folks that I guess they're travel a lot or into fitness, jogging, yoga, whatever it is, uh, having their water bottles. Um, if you have an alternative that's safe, healthy, no toxins that will leach into your water, let us know. Uh, I'm sure there are tons. I'm sure there are tons right here. I could go around and look at some of the goofy uh, green shops here where they probably have all kinds of contraptions. Uh, any, but anything else folks need to get in? Awesome. We'll be here tomorrow for neutralizing workplace racism, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, hopefully folks will be safe. Uh, if you are hanging out with family, friends, uh, all the rest of it, sobriety would be best I'm sure they will have uh, checkpoints out this weekend especially for Black Friday for people to go out and elbow smash each other in the head for a sale um, sobriety for lots of reasons health reproductive health high quality sperm protect those eggs uh, but we'll also need a high functioning brain computer brain health was mentioned in the reading 
Uh, in addition to being sober, if you're going out, just be alert. It's so wild and crazy. The trials and sales and the Rona. Uh, if you see someone being loud and rowdy, exit. This is not a time for verbal confrontations. You should be thinking that this could be another Kyle Rittenhouse. I am going to get out of here. You can call the enforcement officials as you are exiting. Uh, if you're driving, you are sober, buckled, you are not on the cell phone. Uh, we need all of our attention to be aware of what's happening around us, trying to minimize contact with enforcement officers as well, badge or no. All of that said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. No name calling. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Drink more water. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. I'm Shut a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>